0: back
1: to Off the Box. the intro every single uh, episode now.
0: Here's the thing is I'm a little too excited today and I'm going to be real honest with you. I didn't sleep last night, man.
1: Not surprised. You've been talking about this for three, four months?
0: Uh, this has been a dream for, I well, I won't tell you how, how long this has been a dream for, but this is, this is really cool for me. All right. Well, I'll let you take all the excitement. That's so why my wife doesn't get mad at me. <laughs> say I'm excited again. Pretty
1: sure she doesn't listen
0: anymore, but... So today we have uh, Dr. Lilia. Uh, Dr. Lilia, welcome to the show. We appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Um, Garrett, do you want to explain why I'm excited so I don't go fanboy on everyone?
1: I want to hear the fanboy. No, I just want to hear a no. full-on eight-year-old
0: schoolgirl <laughs> <laughs> screeching from the beginning. So my entire life uh, was set on a collision course with punk rock back in – well, I won't date myself, but many, many – many years ago. Uh, there was a little band called the offspring that I heard on the radio back when I was in the seventh grade. Uh, you know, you didn't know what kind of music I liked, but man, I heard that first offspring song, um, bat or no, um, uh, not, yeah, come out and play. And I knew I was addicted at that point. And I went and saw the offspring it was my first concert I ever saw in my life uh, as the, uh, the offspring with AFI and L7. And I got a sampler from nitro records and, uh, life has been completely changed. And Dr. Lilia, you were the founding drummer of The Offspring, so that's why I'm a little excited today. Okay. (laughs) And so in true punk rock fashion, when I first told Dr. Lilia that story, when I met him for the first time, he said the same thing. He's like, cool story, bro. All right.
1: Well, well, for how long did it take you to make that first introduction? Oh, a couple months. And my
0: my team forced me to meet him because I was too scared to meet him the first time. He's going to walk out,
2: right? You know what? I, I didn't make a dime for them, right?
0: <laughs> but you 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 were there, you were the starting man. I don't know, it's cool. It was fun while well, it lasted. <laughs> anyway, you you're a physician now. Some would say.
2: <laughs> what is your uh, what is your specialty? I'm a gynecologic oncologist.
0: Okay. So, before we dive in kind of the, to the meat of that, give us the Thirty second, thirty thousand foot view. Kind of, what does that mean? What we're going to get into later today?
2: Sure. So we're fellowship trained um, gynecologic oncologists that have finished a OBGYN GYN residency. Those are four years, and then for me, it was another three years of GYN oncology. And so we're double boarded in obstetric gynecology and in uh, gynecologic oncology.
0: Okay. Okay. And we're definitely going to get into that. But a lot of you know, with all of our physicians and, and guests, we like to get into. Uh, you know, what was med school like? Uh, what got you to gravitate towards uh, medicine and the specialty? A lot of our listeners uh, tend to skew towards EMS or people that are newer in the healthcare field. And so we really like to give them kind of that what set you on your path. So people that are looking for how, you know, how people got into this track, um, we can give some of that experience. So you were in a punk rock band and yet you wanted to go to medical school. So tell us about those
2: early days. Sort of. It's, uh, I think there's a little bit of amnesia from... Um, some of the things you might have read. So when I was in undergrad in uh, at UCLA in 1984, I was not intending to go to medical school. I was undeclared. I didn't mm-hmm. know what I wanted to do. And um, I was still in the band at that point, and so was Brian, um, now known as Dex. <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow, he was at USC. I was at UCLA. Um, I knew I wanted to be in the sciences, mm-hmm. and... I eventually gravitated towards microbiology. Hi. So I really didn't know I wanted to go to medical school. I just knew I had needed to study more to do whatever I needed to do. And the punk rock scene was dying at that time. And we had done some touring. And it just, you know, our audience was getting younger and younger. And I kind of wanted to change our song, sound and, uh, you know, play on campuses and whatnot to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, more... <laughs> age contemporary. <laughs> <crap>. <laughs> and that just wasn't going to fly. So mm-hmm. they just kept going with it. And I dropped out. Okay. So I went on. But then later, as I got into third and fourth year, which, you know, as any of you know, any university, those are your upper division classes, they get more serious, they get smaller, um, they become less general education. Um, I started getting more and more interested in microbiology. And that's what I declared my major to be okay. before that. And so um, then I went to microbiology grad school, actually, for a year. I was uh, enrolled in the master's program. um, And even then, I wasn't exactly sure that I was going to go to medical school. But I started taking medical classes that were offered to medical students. So I took medical mycology, or the study of pathogenic fungus. And I took um, some uh, medical parasitology courses. And then... That's when I thought, oh, I know what I want to do. I want to go to medical school and study infectious disease. Wow, okay. Yeah, so it just shows you the drift that, you know, you really don't know what you're getting into until you start swimming in that pool and then you know its temperature, you know. So So I didn't know. I didn't know I was going to do any of that.
0: Yeah. So what were, I mean, since you were undeclared, I'm sure you were toying with other ideas. What were the other ideas you had in your head while you were, you know, thinking about medical school? Because there must have been other thoughts. Well,
2: remember, those are disconnected. Mm -hmm. So the thinking about medical school came in graduate school. Okay. The thinking about science, I knew I wanted to gravitate towards the sciences because – I like them, okay. um, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So second year, you know, I had to become something. You know, to <laughs> something. So that's why I picked microbiology because it just seemed interesting. And at that time, that was when the infancy of Genentech and Amgen and all that and so much more yeah. uh, tools to actually measure biology were, were exploding at that time. And so it became more of a quantitative science than biology used to be. Mm -hmm. And it was on its way doing that from the late seventies, you know, onwards. And so it just attracted me to, to study that. And that's how I got into it. And I also, there are other factors too, right? There's factors that, that don't just come into just pure intellectual pursuit. There's the fact that microbiology major was small Mm -hmm. and my school was huge. So, you know, I tried to get into a major that would have more personal attention from professors. Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit of that. Um, There's a little bit of just random chance, you know, you just start taking something and (laughs) start liking it. And so, I mean, to think these things were all preordained or somehow that I knew what I was doing when I was doing it is something I wish to discourage anyone from thinking because none of us have our blank together uh, until
1: it is. (laughs) I remember taking microbiology and, it made me scared of everything. Just learning that germs and viruses and everything were everywhere. And the teacher definitely made me scared of birds because we asked him about birds. And he's like, oh, those are the harbingers of disease. You
2: never go near any birds. Like, you must be really fun on vacation. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's not what happened to me. Um, but to me, the, the love of science is just you, you start learning the building blocks of the universe. You start realizing that the things around us aren't just gross pictures of what they are, but there's a deeper system to everything, a a deep complexity that is astonishing. I mean, there's nothing more beautiful than, than how amazing biological systems are. So, I mean, that, that alone was what dragged me into it. I mean, I didn't want to be in hard chemistry. I mean, it just, it, it seemed a a bit, not the direction I wanted to go and the exciting stuff seemed to be happening in the biologic sciences. Mm So you know, who knows what really made the decisions that I went yeah. that way. But the band thing had already long ended okay. before I'd really gone medicine. But what, you know, what the guys will remember the band is like, oh, yeah, he wanted to go to medical school. I'm like, oh. <laughs> well, that's later. <laughs> A few years in between. <laughs> Was it,
0: you know, we'll, we'll call it, we're just kind of one generation off in the punk rock scene, if you will. Was it weird being in school and and and? driven towards sciences, being in the punk rock scene? Or you know, no one really judged you, really asked questions about it?
2: Uh, no. I mean, I don't think... I think a lot of musicians are into science because music is a puzzle just like science is a puzzle. Mm-hmm. And putting it together is fun and it has sort of the same... There's that depth to it as well. I mean, music has some strange both um, audio, psychological depth as well as having... Um, I'm sorry. The freaking thing is going off. I didn't turn it off. You're a physician. (laughs) Yeah, this
0: happens all the time on podcasts. It gives gives the podcast a little color if you actually have uh, interruptions. (laughs) So we enjoy this. I don't want to, anyway.
2: It's all right. Whatever. Let, it, okay. let it ping. Again, it gives okay. it a little color to sure, the podcast. Sure. So anyhow, where were we? We're talking about um music and science. They they're not mutually exclusive by yeah. any means. Now, mm-hmm. you know, there's the image side of music and what you want to be seeing on stage and having people look at you and, you know, get some kind of validation from crowd approval, but there's also the music itself, which is far more interesting to me and I never left it. So to say that I left the band, well, there was just a couple of years of me not doing anything, and then I really picked it up again. Um, You know, once school, I started got the school thing down and what I wanted to do. Yeah, um, and then all the way through, I'd been in bands all the way from med school on. I've never been out of a band. Yeah, music is. Yeah,
0: day. if you once you start doing it, it doesn't it doesn't leave you. It's always. I mean, I still write music on my own. I'm not in the band anymore either, but
2: right, it's it's always there. It's always there. So. It's just, there's just a human need to make sounds that sound good to us. So yeah. mm-hmm. who knows? When you said that, you know, this is some of the
0: cutting edge stuff coming from um, some of these, you know, early biotech companies, were there, were there articles or was there something that you really gravitated to in the, in the early days of this coming out that you were like, this is cool and I want to be a part of this? Or you just liked the whole experience of it all?
2: Of? Of just
0: what they were coming out with when you said these were the early days of, of biotech.
2: Oh, no, no. Just, I mean, you, you don't really, I mean, you knew that something was going on, that there was, you could tell there was a current
3: mm-hmm. of
2: uh, new discoveries and things like that, that were coming, coming down the pike. And you knew there were professors that talked about it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's how you just learned bits and pieces. There was no internet. Remember, <laughs> you can't imagine that, I'm sure. Uh, no, I don't I know.
1: know. I remember pulling out encyclopedias and writing papers to go to and library. going to the library.
0: Card <laughs> catalogs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Check right. the book yeah. with your name in the front of the thing. and Yellow
2: pages. You just have to be able to read maps and stuff, <laughs> to figure out where you were, and figure out how to meet people without a device hooked on your we, body. We go, we,
0: Garrett yeah. and I started in the ambulance. We go back long enough. There was no GPS when we started. Right. There was a map book. Map and- books,
1: and you brought yeah. a magazine or a book to work to entertain yourself. Mm-hmm. That was it
2: archaic days
0: yeah. pterodactyl. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, but there is a delay. I mean, some of those in the, on those small streets that didn't even have names, you'd have to look at I mean, you'd have to bring a magnifying glass to look at those little tiny cul-de-sacs and courts and things and whatnot. So, you know, I'm glad that I went through this pa- phases, but I'm glad that we have GPS now to get to our emergencies. <laughs> sure. <laughs>
2: Everything's a two edged sword. Yeah,
0: exactly. Exactly. So you, you finish up, you start grad school. So you leave grad school to go to medical school or how does that
2: transition work? So, yeah, so I was in medical, I was in uh, graduate school at the time and they approached me and said, Hey, you know, you seem to be hanging around. Why don't you get into the PhD program? You're already in, you know, just fill mm-hmm. out this paperwork. <laughs> and it just, it just drove a spike of fear into my heart. Cause I really didn't want to do that. Uh-huh. And mm-hmm. at that point I had taken these other classes and, So I really, really didn't want to do that. It was sort of the pace of it is a bit too slow for me. The grad school, at least when I was there now, it's going to be a lot faster, but it just didn't seem like the right thing for me. And then I applied to medical school and got out and I was called a traitor. (laughs) (laughs) So where'd you go to medical school? Uh, University of Pittsburgh. University of Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm.
0: Was that a bit of a culture shock, shell shock to go from California, study, sunny Southern California, to Pittsburgh?
2: Just the snow. I mean, the rest of it is, you know, it's. The, I wanted to be on the East Coast somewhere and get sort of that Eastern education. And that school has okay. a long tradition of of um, pretty uh, uh, tough uh, medical professors. So people hmm. were were pretty tough on you. So I okay. wanted to go somewhere where they'd beat me up, you know, because okay. I'd learn. What was you know, I think we
0: ask a lot of these physicians these questions, but but walk us through you get into medical school. I mean, are you already thinking about Gynock at that point? Or no. what or I mean, No, once again,
2: as I've told people that are on a career path of any type, every stage of every training period uniquely leaves you unprepared for the next. <laughs> <laughs> so medical school absolutely doesn't really prepare you for residency, which doesn't prepare you for fellowship, which doesn't prepare you for like doing the research. I mean, they just don't, the things they focus on are what they focus on. And there's a lot of, you know, academic focus, but the practicality of doing any of those things is unclear until you land in it again. Mm -hmm. So there's the practical and there's the theoretical. And certainly the theoretical is covered by any program, as anyone who's taken a course before, you know, any college course. You say, oh, there's all this stuff I have to learn and I do do a good job on the test and I'm done.
3: Yeah. yeah, but that doesn't
2: tell you what to do with all this stuff and how to put it together in a daily routine and you know harness that information and what the profession or system that you land in looks like. It just doesn't tell you that you have to learn it all from the ground up.
3: Or just by yeah. doing,
2: I
0: think in the healthcare setting, you know, EMT paramedic or physician, yeah, you know, they can teach you this stuff, but until you start dealing with human beings, with patients, it's a whole new ballgame.
2: Well, yeah, but technically, I mean, in, when in medical school, there's a lot of degree of that depending on where you are. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, in a medical school where we were, we were at the VA, you're pretty much doing everything. You're drawing blood, yeah. you're transporting patients, you're finding x rays, you're, you're doing almost everything. That's all the scut work and the actual, um, you know, the, the bureaucratic work, the, the misery of it all. And you have a <laughs> lot of hands on. But then you could be in another rotation where you're just sort of watching in a dreamlike state as other people do things. It sort of depends, right? <laughs> so uh, yeah. until you start actually having to live it though and take responsibility, mm. it's a different answer, right?
1: Oh yeah, responsibility is a big thing once you don't have your attending on call and everything's on you. That's when everything
2: Right. And flips. In, in training programs you have so many eyes looking over you, you know, it's 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 kind of comforting. I mean there's times you're doing things Quote on your own, but it'll always be reviewed. Um, you know, someone will always say, Hey, what happened there? And you have to explain yourself. But the real transition is just getting pushed out the door and suddenly you're it. <laughs> <laughs> I remember this when I was at Valley Medical Center because mm-hmm. I was faculty there for a brief time. I was half time faculty at VMC down the street here. Yeah. And I was half time private practice. And I remember someone said, Oh my God, we need the, you know, the consultant, we need the surgeon, you need to come in there. And I looked over my shoulder and like, Oh, they're looking at me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's a problem. <laughs> there ain't anyone behind me. It's just you. Just me. Are they looking at you. <laughs> yep. So like everyone says all the time, right, is that we all pretend that we have it all together. But every one of us kind of has a feeling that like I- I'm not the one that should be doing this. There should be some expert.
0: Yeah, yeah. You should. You know, Garrett and I were in the ambulance. You know, when we were new. You know, like you should call nine one. Well, oh, wait, we are. We are nine one one. Exactly. <laughs>
2: That's right. It's the exact same thing. Is that until you've been put on the spot for something, all the theoreticals and all the right answers oh, yeah. may be very difficult to process <clears throat> mm-hmm. until you start getting used to it. Now, luckily, I thought my my residency and fellowship training was excellent for that, so I wasn't. Um, I didn't find myself. Not making decisions easily. It just was really weird. Right. Just a really weird thing that that's it. There's nowhere else to go from here. (laughs) I got to do it or nobody's doing it. (laughs) And that was a very strange experience when it first happened. Now I don't even think about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, my dad always told me it's like driving a car. When you first start driving a car, you, every step you think about, put the key in foot in the brake and you go through it in your head on a checklist. And now you just put the key in one hand on the steering wheel and you just go with it. You don't, you don't think twice about it.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of, um, uh, you've ever read like Kahneman or any of these psychological researchers or whatnot, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's a there's systems that you put in your brain and mm-hmm. there's like subroutines that sort of develop and you can call upon those if you've done something by repetitive training over and over what like the military does right, right. they drill you to death so that when a certain thing comes up you can recognize it's that certain thing and just execute it. right you just execute you don't even have to think about it after a while if you do it enough yeah. I don't know how soldiers do it. They get shot at and they still do their jobs. You know, I mean, right. you can't learn that in training. <laughs> <laughs> or, I guess you're in, unless you're in Russia. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what was your, what was the, I, I don't think you had a hardest class. I can just, I can already tell this, but what was, what was the most difficult part of medical school for you?
2: Well, th- it's not, I mean, everything is an intersection between your ability, your distractions the quality of the educator and how motivating they are and how quick they are to recognize that people aren't picking up what they're teaching. Mm. Then there's the material itself, which is, can be super difficult or not and depends on what you've studied before, right? Mm. Some people are more prepared for some subject or not, but there's so many intersecting points. It's sort of meaningless for me to say this class was hard and this class was easy. Um, you know, there, there were some classes that were just taught so well they were easy. But the subject wasn't really, it it could be really hard. So the first time I actually loved calculus and I hated calculus before this is when I had to take um, electronics physics, you know, the physics on electronics, the second, it was the second course at the UCs and I couldn't get the class on campus. So I had to go to UCAI in the summer and take it by itself. Mm -hmm. And because of that, the professor was a joy because he just had one thing to do. He had very few students and calculus was beautiful. How is that possible? Calculus sucks, right? I mean, everyone knows that. I went through four semesters of it. I agree. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. But I liked it. Oh, but yeah. nonetheless, but but at the time, because it was made um, beautiful by the person teaching it and it had application that made sense, mm. you know, you're doing something that you could actually see has a meaning. Yeah. Then it doesn't just become a pile of rote memorization to score on the test, a meaningless task to get marks, right? You're actually learning something for a reason as opposed to the reason just being mercenary.
0: No, I get that in our economics course, we took calculus for economists, which was geared towards more word problems. I mean, you, you still had to do the actual math component, but it wasn't just do these problems so you can find an answer, which I, I remember doing it because I, I was starting out in the ambulance and there was something at least to me, therapeutic about doing math because there was, there was a right answer. It wasn't a patient that could spit at you or lie to you or anything. There was something just pure and it was a break from, you know, what I was doing for my full-time job while still in college. So I don't know. I, or maybe I'm just an uber nerd. I don't know.
2: And there's probably also points in your life where you would not tolerate that. And That's you've got some other distraction or God only mm-hmm. knows what's happening. right? So it's very difficult to, and I would never take advice from me for anything. <laughs> <Right? and laughs> the most dangerous gift is advice. And so, really? You think? Absolutely. I had somebody tell me at UCLA that I would never go to a grad school. Well, they were wrong. I mean, clearly, there you go. So that's advice. So do something else. Was what I was told. Go to be in the you Mm -hmm. know North Campus or whatever. I don't know what motivated him to say that, but he was a person in authority position, and I was not. And I had I really thought twice about my pathway and Mm -hmm. whatnot, you know. But right, it's just
0: do you uh, you know jumping ahead, way ahead. I mean, as if I mean, don't you? I mean, do you offer advice as a physician? Because sometimes there are multiple options.
2: Well, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. Career advice. Oh, okay, How to okay. live your life. Advice. Oh, oh, okay. 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 What I you see. should do with your time. I mean, unless you're talking about, Hey, you need to, you know, do deep breathing exercises post-op and this is what you should do with your time. <laughs> That's different, right? I'm talking about talking to younger people who may be in a vulnerable position and may look at you as some kind of authority on something. And just cons- that concerns me a great deal. Oh, I love giving advice. Oh, you do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no. I, I think it's a good uh,
1: thing to think about. I mean, there's like great, great quote: uh, "All that wander aren't lost," kind of a thing. Where some people yeah. are just kind yeah. of find their own way, and you know, shooting advice at them probably isn't gonna make too much of a difference.
0: I, I already, I love your answer when I said, you know, what was the hardest part about about medical school? And you were like, well, it, it depends on the teacher and what your motivation are and the, where you are in life, because. I've never heard it phrased that way because if you asked me you know, in grad school what my hardest class was, it was advanced microeconomic analysis, hands down hardest class. But I also loved it, but maybe I shouldn't phrase it like that in the sense it was the hardest
2: class. It was also the most rewarding class. Well, I mean if you're doing something – I mean there's the time warp. Of doing things you love versus doing something you hate. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing something you love, I mean, again, a lot of psychological research experts will talk about, it's sort of like being in the zone. Mm -hmm. You know, you just don't notice that three hours has passed and there you are done and did the thing that you really were just in this higher state of processing than you would ordinarily be because your attention is so fixed on it. You're also enjoying it and you think you're doing something good. You know, those things come together and you do really well at something. Whereas if you know, you've got to do something because you hate it. The time will drag. It'll be, you know, minute to minute. You're right. just be whipping yourself trying to get through. It's like Dr. Polster on our podcast when we blew through that meeting on our fourth podcast we had. Yeah, Every one of our podcasts. Most of them, actually. Yeah. <laughs> hate to use a cliche, but time flies when you're having fun. Are you having fun? <laughs> yeah. This is, fun. this is just a chat. You're not asking me about anything substantive. It's awesome.
0: <laughs> so, how did you. You know, how did you gravitate towards your specialty? Like, when did you know? Well, that was,
2: it it came down to the, so there was a, there's a a four quadrant box that um, you can refer to. This is the only advice I ever give to medical students or whatnot. And you can divide all specialties up into surgery. There's always an exception to the rule, right? Well, there are. Surgery, (laughs) non-surgery, work, no work. (laughs) right and if you make that four quadrant like a chi-squared box you can decide you know what you want to do on a practical level like because that's what you have to do on the long run
3: mm-hmm. anything
2: is interesting in the short run and i was interested in almost anything i mean okay. it's all cool to me yeah i mean there were some things that turned me off but you know in well, general like though, I just, um i knew i didn't want to do pediatrics okay like, i can't handle sick kids i'm too much of a wimp okay so i can't do it um but, uh, you know, at the time, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and I was sort of gravitating towards critical care, um, not really general surgery, because general surgery has been gerrymandered down to too few procedures. And I ran across the GYN oncologists in my fourth. I, I mean, I knew about them in the third year, but they w- didn't give me the rotation, so I took it as an elective my fourth year. And I happened to find a great mentor. you know. And what they did you know, in GYN oncology, it's like, General surgery in the 1950s. I mean, you pretty much are not restricted to organ system, as we call it, right? Mm -hmm. The urinary tract, the bowel, the Mm -hmm. muscular stuff. You do some stuff, a little bit of stuff in the chest, you know, whatnot. So, I mean, it it was a kind of mishmash of things. And also you get trained in chemotherapy and you know quite a bit about radiation therapy, although you can't do it under the privileging. But it just seemed like a very broad field. And when you had your patient, nobody else wants to touch them but you. So you have a lot of authority over their care. So it's not so, um, it's, it's a very independent field of practice and it's heavily surgically oriented because what I found is I tried to like anesthesia.
3: Mm -hmm. I really
2: tried, but the whole time (laughs) I was just standing there looking over the drape going, what are you guys doing? (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, it was bad. And then the, you know, instructors would come in and yell at me for not marking the little five minute blood pressure thing on the sheet down and writing down all my vital signs and (laughs) like, okay, I can't do this. (laughs) Now looking back, I mean, looking at my anesthesiologist friends, I think they have a super fun job Mm -hmm. now, but I just think that's, this is more fun to me Mm -hmm. than that is. It's just different. It just, and I like working with my hands a lot. Okay, So, I mean, it's sort of, there's a lot of boxes it checks, right? But there were a lot of other things that could have checked those boxes too. Right. I mean, there's a lot of other specialties. It. I could have done critical care. I really liked it. Mm-hmm. In fact, I invented a critical care rotation during my time as an oncology f- fellow at Michigan. Okay. And um, I had, you know, my faculty were saying, well, do you want to you know, invent electives? And I said, yep, well, I want to make one for the rest of us. I don't think we have enough ICU experience. So I rotated in the thoracic ICU a number of times. And um, that became a fixed uh, elective for us, you know, with the anesthesia department there. And I learned a lot of critical care. Nice. And so I kind of scratched that itch.
0: Okay, okay. Enough that you knew, like, but you still came back, like, this is home for you. I didn't abandon
2: the field and jump, jump, jump to a different field. No, I mm-hmm. didn't. So it stuck with me, and I think this is the right thing for me. I mean, it's a, it's a different field, too. I mean, you have to be, you're dealing with a very different patient population. Um, it's just unique, I think, and there's not many of us. There's only, like, I don't know, 1,100 of us in the country. No, um, you're rare, and, and
0: I know we, we we jump around occasionally, but you cover so many hospitals in the Bay Area. Is that is it difficult to have so many different? I, I don't even I don't know if I want to call them a home base because you're so mobile.
2: The home base is the office, so mm-hmm. everyone comes to the office. Um, but yeah, we go in 50 miles in any direction depending on the type of case, and we try to help out the GYNs to get their cases done. So it's not just cancer that we do, but it's a technical assistance for difficult anatomy mm-hmm. so so called and and since there's a lot of laparoscopy that takes a special skill set so mm-hmm. we can help people get through those and not make an open case out of a laparoscopic case so that happens quite a bit um but mostly though the big cases are actually brought here to Good Sam okay so the big debulkings and things like that that need a lot of post-op care and debulking means that we literally remove tumors that are spread in the cavity of the abdomen and we We painstakingly remove them, you know, bit by bit. It takes a while. It takes about three hours to do that and two and a half hours, whatnot. And so those patients need a lot of post-operative care, and we'd rather have them here with us because it's a distressing time, and it's big surgery, and we'd like our ICU teams to be the same and our anesthesiologists to be the same, and we just know the skill set here is extraordinary. I mean, honestly, this is like a tertiary referral center in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways. We have amazing anesthesiologists, and they do a really good job with regional anesthetics, we have an excellent interventional radiology team that can hit a target anywhere in the body I mean it 's amazing. I mean I get referrals from elsewhere they failed. I bring them here and they do it right um, We have an amazing ICU team and they um, do a phenomenal job keeping people stable um, so and then there's a lot of other allied specialists that I can call upon who will immediately come and do what they need to do and do it right. so we do have a home base, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But the spokes of the wheel all lead out and we'll do certain cases elsewhere for the convenience of the patient, um, depending on the circumstance.
0: Do you, are you like a chameleon? Do you blend in with other cultures? At, at, again, it's a lot of other hospitals you work at. Or is it difficult sometimes? Or the cultures kind of the same because <laughs> it's all a hospital? What, what is that like for you?
2: Oh, it's fine. I've never had a, really, a real problem with it. I mean, mm-hmm. um, Back in 2000, it was a little more difficult. Because um, generally, you you could clash with the local general surgeons because GYN oncology and the types of procedures we did seemed so unfamiliar. And to operate on somebody with widely metastatic disease in the abdomen seemed like the wrong idea. I mean, that's not what you do for a lot of the other diseases, at least in the past. I mean, surgical oncology has also gotten more aggressive over time. And um, so it was a little bit of explaining. Um, a little bit of bringing him into the case with you when something needed to be done, Give him something to do, let him see what your hands <laughs> do okay, talk to them you know show them that you know what you 're talking about. see them in the lounge. you know, just be collaborative. You just have to be like anything else. you just have to be interactive and explain what you 're doing and most people, if you 're not crazy or terrible they 'll they 'll get on board
0: yeah i mean i 'm just getting we haven 't delved into the clinical side, but you have to have so many. I guess relationships with general surgery, like you said, IR, your your clinical care teams. Your oh, I could yeah, sell man.
2: my text contact list to some marketer for millions. <laughs> millions. Of, I have the cell phone of so many doctors in so many places. It's ridiculous, and you know, and honestly, text has been the greatest thing ever. I mean, we talk about the two edges sword mm-hmm. of technology. I mean, the texting has changed everything. We can instantly communicate with each other. We don't have to wait and delay and you know, have things not happen in real time. You can find people when they can respond, you know, and they don't have to go through an intermediary Leaving a message at the office, and you
0: know, I know. Like if I could go back in time and tell my 14 uh, year old self, I'd be texting the original drummer of the Offspring. I, I, w- I, I mean, that's I wouldn't need any more Christmas gifts. <laughs> Sorry, I had to put that plug in there. <laughs> well, you
2: can tell your family you don't get any more Christmas gifts.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I already told my family I'm interviewing you. My sister's a big punk rocker; she was really excited to uh, to have this happen. Um, Garrett, I know you're big into clinical, and I've I've commandeered the first part of this. Yeah,
1: I'll take a quick break, and we'll jump in. Yeah, let's do that. Perfect.
0: Hello, friends. Dude, we went over this. Rogan doesn't use that intro anymore. Oh, right. Well, if imitation is the greatest form of flattery, and intellectual property never really meant anything to me, uh, what do we do now? I tell you what
1: I'm not going to do. I'm not going to have another sit-down without this compliance. That We've been in that office way too much lately.
0: Right. You bring up a good point. But hear me out. Okay. Okay. What? What if our listeners shared this episode? You know, social media, word of mouth, carrier penguin, you know, the common methods of sharing great content like Off the Box. <sighs> we went over this penguin thing already. They don't listen to the podcast. They can't be relied upon. Do we really want them carrying the message out?
1: They can't be trusted.
0: Alright, well, we can rely on our audience. And to let everyone know, Garrett and I used to basically ignore podcast ads, but now that we host one, this is actually important to us.
1: Yeah, it's like if you become rich or find out you have ten 10- shares a GameStop. (laughs) You have an opinion on the capital gains tax.
0: Exactly. So now that you care about Off the Box, if you like it, please do share it with a friend. Uh, We really appreciate you guys doing that. And now, back to the show. Perfect. So
1: uh, jumping back in, um, so gynecological oncology – Physician, what exactly does that cover? What are you treating? What kind of patients are you seeing? Maybe just a big general overview, and then we'll kind of jump into some
2: specifics. So it's women. Um, oh, interesting. Right. <laughs> you guys have a serious sense of humor on <laughs> television. Um, yeah, it's it's basically um, we. Besides the, if you exclude the benign part of it, the benign meaning not cancerous stuff, which we do, as I mentioned before, technical stuff that. I mean, pretty much we're the slaves of the gynecologists. If they call us and say, do this, we go do it. So if whatever case is that they don't feel comfortable doing, we do. So there could be, on the benign side, people that are medically ill that we're a little more used to taking care of because we take care of the sickest people. It could be technical difficulties with anatomy. Um, That's part of the field now, and it's becoming more and more part of the field as I think our field is bifurcating in OBGYN, like many people are going to straight OB and then fewer and fewer people right. are into gyne. And then we're ending up being the surgical subspecialty of it all. So it may change, you know, it is changing over time. And then of course, there's the malignant side where we deal with the female cancers, but not breast. Um, breast is its own thing. And you have to be kind of a half radiologist, half surgeon to do it. And you have to spend a whole lot of time looking at films to okay. do breast. So... There have been programs that have combined the two, but it turns out that in practicality, many of the people that get trained in those programs, like Brown used to do that, Brown University, many people end up just doing breast you know, or or skipping the breast, getting out of it and just doing it. So it just turned out to be not practical, even though it was kind of like, well, we should do all women and do all their things, but really we should just stick to breast as its own world. And it's very medical too, so it doesn't quite marry with our field.
0: And yeah, do you think that just because the way you like it, you want to be hands-on, and you saying with the breast cancer, you're going to be looking at films, and it's more medical, and so just it's a different brain. Type for even the physician, right?
2: Well, it was never even a choice Uh when I I graduated. Those programs came into being later. Like people came up with the idea of let's make a double threat kind of thing, you know, like Mm. like, let's do both. So, but I just don't think it's panned out that well, at least from what I can tell. I mean, I'm sure there's somebody that can do it all, you know, who knows? Maybe they don't sleep. But (laughs) the point is, is that, you know, I don't think from the general um population of us i don't think it works out very well and there are already people that are specializing in that and just that yeah you no know, so you don't want me to be just that and this too you know you, you really want me as a subspecialist so we do you know ovarian cancer is the the most um the, probably the biggest surgeries we do are ovarian cancer patients So we do those um we do uh, cervix cancer uterine cancer vulvar cancer which is the outside of the skin that you can look at on the pelvis and vaginal cancers and then there's some other oddball diseases that are related to the reproductive tract that we do as well so all it's it's a pelvic surgery plus kind of thing that we do
0: right and just to get a plug for dr volpe who we had on last week that that's why you took her into your practice because so much of what you're doing then probably you know segues to um urinary incontinence, which is why you have that kind of team approach.
2: Yeah. And it's not just incontinence. I mean, she does a lot more than that, you know, Mm -hmm. but it's, it is, people get um, pelvic floor disorders when they're radiated, when they've had chemotherapy, when they've had a lot of surgery, they start getting a lot of different pelvic floor disorders. And, you know, we just didn't really have somebody dedicated to this improving quality of life. And so she's a natural fit. And it just adds to the component of what we do. We already have a physical medicine and rehabilitation doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, Megan Littlepage works for us, too. For people that have, you know, a lot of rehabilitation issues, you know, we we like having her on board. Um, it's very difficult to find somebody in behavioral health. So it's just, you know, the coding system and the billing system just doesn't reward people for doing it. So it's been an ignored thing in society, as as we all know. We'd love to have somebody on board that does behavioral health that was on site with us, but it's just not turned out to be practical, but that kind of mimics what cancer centers try to do. You know, you try to cover so-called the whole patient, you know, as they say, but it's the idea is I'm, I'm trying to cover things that are practical that people really need. And that's why we extend in our private practice, that type of, that type of service. So yeah, we, we recruited her specifically because we, we had a lot of people who were complaining and really weren't able to get something that they considered to be, a nuisance and beneath their, um, their complaining ability because they already had cancer, you know, so people feel very embarrassed about saying, well, but I want to feel better than I do when they're ready dealing with cancer or trying to survive it. It just, I don't know what it is. It's like, they just don't want to complain. So right. you get these things, they don't want to complain, so they won't go to a different doctor, sign a bunch of different new forms, they've already mm-hmm. seen the medical oncologists, right. they've seen the radiation colleges, they've seen us, they've seen. They got so many appointments, and to add yet another place to go and right. yet another doctor and yet be complaining about these things they don't feel worthy right. to complain about, I think a lot of that adds into people's decision to not get treated for, say, incontinence.
0: Yeah, and that's what we, when we talked with her, we liked that you guys were in the same office, so you didn't have to go across town. Um, she was there, rather. Because she said a lot of
2: patients are waiting a lot, like years sometimes. And five years, finally, I think, it was yeah. average
1: for the urinary incontinence. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. And so we've seen the same thing. So I, I'd see patients. I'd take the information say, looks like you're suffering from X. Why don't you get it taken care of? Nah. But now, with Katie around, mm-hmm. I say, hey, she's right over there. Would you like to see her today? or tomorrow or the next, you don't have to fill out anything new. We got all your information. Right. right. Um. Well, okay. And then they get fixed. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. And it's it's, mir- it's miraculous. I mean, <laughs> it's great. It's just, it's great having her on board. So it's yeah. just been, a, it's been a It's been a sea change for us to be able to deal with those things that are just so, They're so time-consuming, difficult to treat, and it takes a special touch and a special kind of person to deal with She's
0: She's got that, and that's why it was an honor to have her, and I think even to have her on first to set up what you do, an, an understanding the total patient in the process of this all. And just that when we talked with Dr. Volpe again, you don't talk about this, you might make a joke or two about it, but this impacts people. I mean, this is, I mean, she's saying people just hide in their houses and it's, it's terrible.
2: Yeah. And I mean, and the problem is, is medicine in general is going to massive organizations and I just don't think the communication is as good as it could be. And so I really, really enjoy the private practice setting where we can literally talk to somebody, Hey, um, you know, staff member one, whatever, Mm -hmm. you you know, whoever's on my staff say, Hey, can you just take care of this? Right. You know, and then the, they know my staff, they've seen them before. They've talked to them before we handle all these little issues for them, like their insurance nightmares and um, other issues they might have of communication with somebody else, set up referrals to further away if we have to Right. manage all the paperwork and communication goes back and forth. I just don't think that happens necessarily everywhere. Okay. And the bigger something gets, as you know, Mm-hmm. The bigger a machine gets, the more inhuman it becomes.
0: Right. Uh, before we jump into the next clinical one, but when it comes to how these patients come to you, do they seek you out? Is it typically PCP referral?
2: How do, how do they find you? How do, how, do, how do you get? The vast majority are referred by somebody. Oh, okay. So somebody okay. has a problem. They're aware we exist. And then they send us over. The vast number of uh, referrals comes from the gynecologists, of course, because they're okay. the ones that usually will be doing a pelvic exam. Hi. And they'll find that. But, you know, there's a lot of referrals that come from, you know, incidental Im- imaging. Like the orthopedist will find, you know, they're scanning the back for something and they see an incidental pelvic mass. And they'll send the patient over because she has a newly found mass. Incidentally, another scan looking at something else. You know, or people come from the ER or the hospital or, I mean, it can come from anywhere, but it's, it's almost always a physician to physician referral. Okay. We are the physician's physician really in a lot of ways and not, you know, you don't, people don't just come off the street saying, Hey, I need an oncologist. Right? <laughs> well, I, well, I, I didn't know when that's what I was, I was no, asking. No, no, I'm not, I don't mean to, it might
1: be always good to have one in your back pocket and kind of a thing.
2: Yeah. I,
0: I've yeah. learned so much just into it, you know, Garrett and I, you know, 15 years each on the ambulance and we thought we knew healthcare at least had a good idea and then we got in the hospital setting and we were like, oh nope. my God. I it goes I, past I, the
1: ED? Yeah.
0: <laughs> I and so I'm learning something new every day and that's why I love doing this podcast because I can talk to you in, in long form. So when it comes to, I mean, what, what typically causes these cancers?
2: Well, I mean, if it's not, if something doesn't have a genetic driver, right? Mm-hmm. Some people have inherited genes and it's not many. I mean, mm-hmm. For ovarian cancer, it's like 7%, you know, but most of these things arise spontaneously. And for a lot of diseases, we just don't know. I mean, we got risk factors, but, you know, who gets it and who doesn't seems to be somewhat by chance. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like all cancers, um, they all develop slowly, over hit mutations that survive somehow. The cell's own ability to edit out bad genetic material past the immune system's ability to detect a bad cell. Um, past their own inability to metabolize things and they get over it. So it it takes multiple hits, as they call, to Mm. the structure of cells for them to become a stable um, replicating cell that goes on and on and on and does the things that it does. And then it has to go further than that and be able to break away from the tissue it started at and go somewhere else if that's its ability and become a true malignancy. So nobody really knows what leads to all these things. Um, but there are some things we do, you know, like cervix cancer is mostly driven, almost all of it by the HPV virus. As we mentioned, did we talk we about, talk about, about the pre-show? Yeah. The pre-show. Yeah, yeah. Vaccine. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So yeah, HPV drives a number of cancers. So there are some virally driven cancers, you know, like, uh, the Epstein-Barr virus will drive some, um, white cell disorders that are cancers. Right. But, Not all of them. And so most of the time, we honestly don't know Mm -hmm. why somebody got something and someone else didn't of the same age and the same seeming risk factors. We don't know. Why does does a virus cause cancer? Well, it it contributes to it. Okay. So... um, it first causes dysplasia and then something else has to happen. So pre-cancer is what the pap What's smear was dysplasia? invented for. dysplasia again? Dysplasia is bad growth. Okay. Is what okay. It means. So, you know, the pap smear was invented to scrape the cervix, cervix surface okay. so that you could detect these precancer cancer cells. That's what it was made for. And it takes, we think about five years to get an actual cancer out of that of not being seen. Hmm. So the pap smear was invented a long time ago and it's done an amazing job knocking down the incidence of cervix cancer because we find it, in the pre-cancer phase. It's a, one of the few really effective and cheap screening tests we have. So a lot of our cases of cervix cancer in this country are coming from overseas where they don't do pap smears. So that's where we see probably the majority is people that have immigrated and they never got any of that care. And so, um, you know, the, the, you have to have a pre-cancer stage first and then something else has to happen. And we know c- smoking contributes to it. Um, but then we don't really know. I mean, it just happens in some people and doesn't happen in others.
1: What's the difference between a, I guess, benign tumor or mass versus a cancerous? Because I always hear those. You have a tumor. We're going to find out if it's cancer or benign.
2: Okay, so tumor just simply means from um, from Latin is that lump of cells. Okay. So a wart is a tumor, right? So any lump of cells growing disorderly in not in a normal anatomic way that looks like kind of a ball, is a tumor. Or you could call it a lesion, which is another <laughs> nonspecific term <laughs> that could mean a cut on your skin, or it could mean a rash, or it could mean a tumor. You know, we, we use these terms generically. And then mm-hmm. to call it benign or malignant depends on its behavior. So we're, there are biological interrogations you can look at and say, oh, these genes are associated with cancer, but not always to, does something have all those genes to be a cancer or not. So it's still a little bit of a black box, like on the on the uh, sub microscopic level when you're looking at DNA and RNA. But the but a tumor cell depends if it goes to cancer. It means it has to do a couple of things. It has to one be immortal. I mean, it doesn't just go away on its own, unless of course the immune system gets it, which can happen. It can grow on its own and usually escape the immune system. It can grow through tissue planes where it started. So, for instance, a melanoma, right? It's in the skin but it has the ability to break through the basement membrane of the skin where it's all applied to. That's where all skin cells are supposed to stay. And then it can dig into the blood vessels and the Mm. tissues that are deeper than that. And then it also oftentimes, not always, has the ability to break off and grow somewhere else. So cancer has to have those things in place for it to be able to really be called a cancer. So in a kind of way, it's sort of an arbitrary thing, I suppose. But when the pathologist can usually tell by looking at them that they're You know, on the microscope, they can say that, well, this is malignant because it has those things. You can see Mm. the cells growing just in a disorganized fashion and, quote, invading the tissue around it. They can slip through the barriers that are supposed to be set up that tell a cell to stop growing. So it's unrestricted growth, growth elsewhere, um, ability to live forever. You know, and if you, I don't know if you've ever seen a cell line in the lab, but cell lines were taken from human beings that had cancer, then they culture them in uh in a petri dish and they live independent of the body. So wow. they're, they're immortal. They can be passed again and again and, and like re replicated in different um, petri dishes. Whereas your cells, if you do that to them, they'll pass a certain number of times and they'll, they'll kill themselves. They'll self-destruct. So your cells have built into them their own mechanisms for recognizing they're sick and killing themselves. It's called apoptosis. You know, they're, they're supposed to, when they get senile and they don't work any well, well anymore, they, they kill themselves. So your cells are incredibly organized. I mean, we as organisms are the most astonishing set of machinery that's ever been known to. You know, I agree. Oh yeah, I, I always I mean, say Biologic you know,
1: systems are crazy, crazy. It's hard to copies. believe when things go wrong, but it's even harder to believe how everything goes right.
2: <laughs> I don't know how I wake up in the morning. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't know why I wake up in the morning. Why does this all crash and die? The signaling is 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 extraordinary. You know, there's so much so much signaling going on. Um, it's, it's, it's mind boggling. We're going to need supercomputers to try to track it all in a me- way to measure things on a small level to ever get beyond what we're doing now. And we're just scratching the surface. Oh yeah. You, first
0: fun rabbit hole. Do you think that cancer leads to eternal life at some point then because of the way you
2: described it? Who the hell knows? He's giving me a dirty look. Yeah, no, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, who knows? I mean, the, let's hope to God we don't ever discover that because you can only imagine the social destruction. I mean, you've read science fiction where that's no, I, happened, right? I mean, that's bad news, just like the singularity is bad news, right? <laughs> I mean, these things are not something I hope for to see in my <laughs> lifetime. But nonetheless, um, who knows? I mean, people have made the connection, you know, because mm-hmm. the word immortality is used, so how could you not? Yeah. Um, but senescence is, is tied into this. Immune system's tied into this. There's some connection between all of this that, you know, hopefully we'll start figuring it out to do some good, but everything's a two edge. (laughs) So
0: how much do you, I'm I'm fascinated. And I know we've got a million more clinical questions, but how, when you have these discussions with patients, how in depth do they typically want you to go when it comes to
2: educating them about this? Well, they tell you. So, Um, I mean, there are some patients that say, I don't even want to know, do it. But then again, I feel it's my duty to make sure they know what they're talking about. So, you know, you're, this is sort of, um, boilerplate stuff for medicine, but risk benefit ratio, you know, if you can, if you can do it, then that's what you should describe. But, you know, predicting the future is very difficult because it's about the future. (laughs) So, um, that, that's a difficult thing to do, but people do need to know, I think what they really need to know is what are, what they're getting into, you know, how can it go wrong is really the first thing. And so that's what you talk about. And people will direct you, you know, they'll ask questions and, you just have to give them enough time to do it and enough time to come back and do it again if they need to. A call today I took was literally, a woman told me, I have no idea what you said yesterday. Can you go over it again? Like, sure. You know, yeah. Okay, we'll do it again. Right. I was like, okay, yeah, I do remember that now. But, you know, it's like we talked about for school, you know, your mental state of something, you may not hear any words past cancer.
0: Yeah, I, 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 I'm going to guess that, yeah, once you say that, they're not going to hear anything else. You probably have to do it a couple times with a lot of people. Well, I think
2: the people who have the harder job or the people that diagnose it on the front end and do a biopsy or something and say that you already have, they are the ones that yeah. have oh, the most difficult job because okay. not only do they have the biopsy and the knowledge of that, but they really don't want to put words in my mouth and have to explain it to somebody. So they, they, they have a, a unique situation where they have to, the primary care person, the person up the front end has probably the most difficult conversation because it's the shock and the, uh, you know, the initial shock by the time they've seen me, They've probably read a million things on the internet. They've thought yeah. about it. They've talked to each other. It's, it's a, my job's a little bit easier because of that. I think they have the harder job.
0: I see. So they get hit with the cancer news. They probably have a few follow-up questions that that doctor says, you know, I don't know. You're, you're going to have to talk to Dr. Lilly about that. And they're stunned yeah, they're and frustrated. And then by the time they come to you, they've probably processed, have their questions, and you're the expert that can answer those questions.
1: Yeah. How fast are you usually able to get the men after that first
2: Oh, it depends. Um, I mean, anybody can get in almost instantly if we have to. Um, Depends, they get triaged. You know, we look at what somebody has, what Mm -hmm. other people have that are coming into the office. Does somebody need to be bumped? Do we have to, you know, what do we have to do to get somebody in? But if someone urgently needs to get in, well, they get in okay. or we just deal with it, you know, or, or we don't even get them in. We just have the, the admitting doctor admit them and we go to them in the hospital, you know, whatever it takes, they go to the ER, you know, Perfect. Uh, it, it, we look at every situation and deal with it accordingly. The anxiety part is what I try to minimize because the time between initial visit and seeing us is what we pride ourselves on knocking that time scale down. Yeah. I
1: can see that probably being the most difficult thing of just that time went in to see a specialist and actually
2: yeah and that's how we honestly that's how we compete against the big systems that are out there you know the universities of the world and the uh big organizations that are you know that are uh that have a, a lot of people in them we get people in very quickly mm-hmm. and people like that so yeah. we do it again <laughs> <laughs>
0: have you ever you know, I you know hypothetical situation but have you? Has there been a patient in an OR where that you had to go into the OR immediately because of an issue? Or everything's yeah. pretty rescheduled? No, no, no.
2: Um, although our field is normally planned, um, <laughs> we are asked to assist on. Well, to, to go deal with um, obstetric bleeding that's beyond a certain amount. Like, that's that's happening from time to time. I mean, because the anatomy can be difficult. Um, we've been called in the OR when there's been. Um, you know, like urinary tract injuries to go repair those because we reconstruct the urinary tract. Um, sometimes bowel injuries, but there's a lot of general surgeons around, so they they often just call them. That's no problem. Um, we've been called into difficult, more it's difficult anatomy where the pelvis is, is the anatomy is unclear because the disease is obscuring everything. Mm-hmm. Like even, like you've heard of the disease endometriosis, right? Yeah, yeah. That's a common one because it <clears throat> behaves kind of like cancer in that it destroys anatomical planes. And so our, our um, we're used to it. And so we can get called into that to dig out anatomy, literally, from being stuck to stuff you want to keep, like your blood vessels, <laughs> and, uh, your bladder, your ureters, your valve. Yeah, those the, things that you want yeah, intact. Yeah. So we get called for those technical things quite a bit to go deal with that. And we try not to let that happen, and we try to have it planned so that we're not abandoning someone else. And sometimes we can't come because we are with someone else. So we try to minimize that by having all surgeries that seem to be predicted to be difficult. Come to our office, get processed, we put them on the schedule, Mm -hmm. we're there already. Or, you know, the referring physician will say, look, I think this might be difficult. They schedule the case, talk to the patient. Patient doesn't want to talk to us, Said, ah, whatever, I trust you. You know, I don't need to hear it from the horse's mouth, you know. (laughs) Just bring them along. And (laughs) then I just show up and do whatever they tell me to do. (laughs) <laughs> what What is your scheduling like then? Are you
0: on call 24-7? Do you trade off with a with your partner? I mean, how does, how does...
2: So we have a call group like everyone does. So the night call is on whoever's on call. And during the day, we try to take care of our own. Okay. So, and then our staff is, um, you know, there's a, an answering service at night. that will answer and find whoever's on call for whatever emergency and try to take care of whatever we need to take care of. So, yeah, it's like any other practice. That's not much different. Okay.
0: As far as your specialty, I mean, is there a decent... Work-life balance, or do you get hammered with a lot of surgeries and back-to-back stuff, or how, how does
2: that work for you? I don't know how to answer that. <clears throat> um, I don't know anymore. It's been doing it so long, I'm not sure what that is anymore, to be honest. But no, I do good answer. I do get home most nights. I will do about 10 surgeries a week and get home by time for dinner next okay. night. That's my goal, is trying to make it home to my kids.
0: No, I mean, I, you, you give some of the most unique answers that make me think... Uh, which is what I love. So I appreciate um, just how candid and your uniqueness in your answers uh, because it makes me think. Oh, well, good. (laughs) I think that's the point of all this, isn't it? No, it is. It is.
2: (laughs) Exactly. And interesting answers out of
1: people. (laughs) Um, When you you find something like a master of cancer, like ovarian cancer, um, when you go in, how different can those treatment options be? Because I'm just thinking for myself, if I, you know, here the big C-word, you have cancer. I, my, immediately, I would just think, cut whatever you need to cut out. I don't want to ever have this again. But then you don't really think about those consequences of it. Like total hysterectomy might have issue with hormones and a lot of other things
2: that well, can happen for, well, with it. Well, to, to, just to answer the question, I mean, the average age of ovarian cancer is in the early 60s, right? Mm-hmm. So most people are menopausal already. So the ovaries are the only thing that produce hormones. And so most people aren't missing that, hmm at the time. But yes, younger patients, you have to think about those things. And trying to spare that if you can, depending on the disease state, we do. We try to you know, spare as much function that people have yeah, that we yeah. can get away with. So with ovarian cancer, as you probably know, it grows along the surfaces of the skin lining of the abdomen. There's a thin layer of cells called the peritoneum that can be peeled off most of the organs, except for some of them. It's really too tightly uh, uh, adherent to, like parts of the bowel. Mm -hmm. Um, And so parts of the bowel may have to be removed and stapled back together. Um, Other parts you strip away. So you spend quite a bit of time, as I referred to earlier, literally dissecting it off these organs and peeling it away, trying to get to a state where there's zero disease you can see with your eyes. So that's it. So the uterus doesn't function for anything other than pregnancy. So if people Mm -hmm. are not interested in that, that's not a meaningful organ to worry about. And you know people will remove their uterus for bleeding or you know, being uncomfortable yeah. with something else. So as long as they're not trying for childbearing, then that doesn't become part of the equation. Um, so yeah, you just spend time destroying disease. It's called debulking, getting rid of bulk.
1: How how precise do you have to be with that, or how do you know how precise to be? Because, like you said, one—I mean, these cells are immortal. I mean, if you just leave oh, one right, or two right. cells,
2: well, no, you're always leaving cells you can't see because it's microscopic, mm-hmm. and your eyes can only see things to a certain resolution. Yeah. So, uh, all ovarian cancer is always accompanied by drug therapy or chemotherapy. Chemotherapy just means drug, and the chemotherapy agents aren't all the same. So, um, people make that mistake quite frequently, but the, the idea is that you have to follow it up with some other systemic treatment, mm-hmm. even though the disease is confined to the lining of the abdomen. And sometimes the, the fluids are put in the abdomen with the chemotherapy, like we do hyperthermia, as you, you were talking about earlier offline. We have a protocol for heating chemotherapy and putting it in the abdomen of people that have recurrent cancer um, of the peritoneum, and we do it with the surgical oncologist. They do the GI tumors. We do the ovarian c- cancers and and whatnot, and we wrote the protocol in two thousand five, and it's been going since two thousand six. So we've been running that hyperthermia protocol for a long time. So to answer your question, mm-hmm. yeah, we're very we're very cognizant that there's more than meets the eye yeah. inside, and then the recurrence rate's very high for ovarian cancer, but the initial response is excellent.
0: So what are, what are what are your treatment options? Because I know. Have a lot. You've got surgery. You've got other inter- interventions. So once they come to you and, and you've diagnosed them with with what they have, what are your what are your treatment well, options? Well, your options are you-
2: grossly are surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, hyperthermia. Right. So there are four major modalities, as we'd call it, for treating cancer. So it just depends on the disease. So, you know, up front, it's more cut and dried because the, you know, for ovarian cancer, generally, it's chemotherapy plus surgery in some order. You know, it's, it's changed a little bit over time. Some people get chemotherapy a little bit up front, get their surgery and finish it on the end. Um, some people get the surgery up front, and then you finish mm-hmm. all the chemotherapy on the end. And then we've had a bunch of biologics that have come into play. So there's um, drugs that can prevent the recycling of DNA for cells that are susceptible to it. So I don't know if you ever heard of the term PARP inhibitor. Mm -mm. So PARP inhibitors are new oral drugs that for people that have a a BRCA gene, have you ever heard the BRCA gene before you heard that term?
1: Heard the term. Breast and
2: ovarian cancer, hereditary cancer gene. So people that have that gene, the, the cancer cells have it too, and they're heavily dependent on... Um, DNA recycling pathways that cells use only sometimes, but they use a lot of the time. So you can throw a monkey wrench in it by giving them these drugs and the patients do a lot better. The survival is much, much better than people that don't have that gene. Wow! And then sometimes the cancer itself has these rearrangements and the person doesn't have it hereditarily, but the cancer itself has developed that. So we we do uh, sequencing of the DNA and RNA of tumors that come out of pathology and send them off to these secondary labs and they look at them and then we can use these same drugs in certain classes of those patients that have that as well. So they can finish the chemotherapy and then get put on a maintenance drug for years and they do better. So we have these, this has been a huge advancement with ovarian cancer over time. And then of course you've heard, I'm sure you've heard of immunotherapies that have been poking around. So Mm -hmm. they've had a modest success with other diseases, not so much with ovarian yet, but there are some people that have certain characteristics on those gene tests that I've told you about. You can stain cells and look at them and say, oh, this one's really suppressing the immune system. So use these immune unblocking drugs. That's what they are. So there's, there's drugs um, that unblock your white cell's ability to not recognize oh, wow. the cancer cells. And so you can use those in some people. And they've been successes, mostly in lung cancer, but you know we've used a bit of it in cervix cancer and uterine cancer. It's not a magic bullet. It's not for everyone, not everyone's susceptible to using those drugs, but some people are. So there are things we're learning in dribs and drabs of so-called targeted therapy, and that's what we're talking about here, is drugs that are based on some characteristic of an analysis of the cell that shows it's got something going on that you can target, a receptor, a Hmm. a gene, an RNA. uh, And we try to use those crude results to see if people will respond to the thing that you're using.
1: Well, that's the hardest thing, thinking about cancer, where you just think about cancer as a very general term, like for the layperson. You have cancer. Why can't we find a treatment for it when just from talking? I and mean, there's a million different pathways that it could take. And...
2: Well, and remember, we're basing all of our descriptions of cancer. And this is, the, this is what's happening now in oncology is we used to, to call all cancers by what organ did it come from?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, it's lung. came from lung. Now, what kind of cancer is it? Well, it's this kind of cancer. It's a gland cancer. It's an adenocarcinoma. So it's a lung adenocarcinoma. But we're finding commonalities between some of the tumors that may make us not think in the terms of all our old studies that are based on where did the tumor come from, how did we group those patients together to treat mm-hmm. them as a big group to see if something works or not, because that's, that's what a clinical trial is or a study. And then we use that information to guess what we should do to the next patient, right? So now you did a trial at Mayo Clinic and there was this many patients and we thought this response with this drug, now you should use this drug on this patient because we had that response before. But that's all based on the anatomic word we use for the disease. It's spread or stage because there's the, there's the name of the tumor, which is the organ that we start in. Mm-hmm. Then the type of cell it looks like under the microscope because that's the next classification. Then there's how weird that cell looks, which is the grade. And then there's the stage, which is where is it? Where is it? Where is all this stuff? So that's how we've been classifying tumors. But someday, we'll come to probably classifying them a little bit differently or grouping them across those classes saying, well, no, 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 it's, these are all you know, EGFR receptor positive cells. Mm. We should treat them all the same. Or God only knows what. <laughs> There'll be categories that we come up with that cross those boundaries. So we're blurring them now. Mm. And um, our techniques are ahead of our ability to process them. And our sample, um, our sampling of tumors in the body is a little bit difficult because you're taking it from one biopsy or one piece of it. Does that yeah. represent everything? And now we're going to so-called liquid biopsies. And I'm giving you a really whirlwind of how quickly this is moving, where you take the blood samples and assume the stuff shed into the blood represents the whole body's burden of tumor rather than the chunk you took out and sent to the lab. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It- Fascinating. So this is all happening now, and we're, our technology is a bit ahead of our processing of what to do with it. But also, it's also being supplanted by technology that's coming ahead of it. So, for instance, I'm, I'm a consultant for Roche Pharmaceuticals, which does Foundation One testing, which is one of the, these next-generation gene sequencing testing companies that does mm-hmm. work with um, their cancer cells. And I did the same for Tempest. But now I'm getting involved with a country company called Intraven, which is up in Redwood City, that have found a way to characterize proteins on the protein level, which is not unheard of. I mean, everyone can do it, but they can do it with mass spec, a mass spectrometer. Okay, yeah. And they could do it really fast. And they could basically look at... um, Glycoproteins are incredibly complex. So when you make a protein in your body, often there's these antennae of sugars that are hung off of it by the Golgi apparatus, you know, and then... All this, these, these proteins aren't just a protein, they're a sugar plus protein, you know, big carbohydrate backbone, all kinds of stuff happens to it. And then the body uses that and clips them and adds to them and modifies <laughs> them, and, and it makes things different. Yeah. So there's a psychotic level of complexity that's beyond DNA, RNA, protein that we barely even sniffed. We know about it, but there's never been a way to really interrogate it. And so this company has a way of taking a sample and then running the sample results Processing that 100 microliters of blood, putting it onto a mass spec, somehow separating this. I don't completely understand their lab technique, but they do a really good job of separating this stuff out, run it through the mass spec, and generate a blizzard of data off of that. And then they have a neural network look at that data and tell you what it is. That would take a PhD level person eight months to do, and they can do it in eight minutes.
1: Wow. So
2: what I'm saying is that, sorry to interrupt, but it's that we've suddenly stumbled upon a tool that's going to open up a whole world of what the hell is going on in the blood, right? Yeah. So that's what's so interesting is that we've already surpassed the thing we can't use very well, which is the liquid biopsy, (laughs) looking at RNA and DNA Mm -hmm. in the blood. We've already seemed to supplant that with yet another way of doing this. So it's, it's dizzying how quickly things are moving, but yet to translate that into human stuff is hard. Now, this company's, promising to give us a screening test for ovarian cancer. So we're getting involved in some of their earliest phases of work to actually bring that to the population. We're going to have that really soon. We're going to have a screening test for ovarian cancer. That, my friends, does not exist. We have never been able to do it.
1: Wow. That's incredible. And it's funny the way you mentioned it, where at first where they started sequencing uh, DNA, the human genome. They thought that was it. We sequenced this we can figure out pretty much everything, genes, everything. Then they sequence it and they go, actually it seems like proteins are really the things controlling most things. And we need to try to figure out how these things build it together and fold and all that stuff. So there's always another level that they can go down to and this figure out. This is the bottom that.
2: of the rung, because the, the, the proteins are the machinery of your body. They do things, their pores or mm-hmm. their receptors or their signaling chain components or they metabolize. They do all the work of your cell. The membrane just keeps barriers between things to keep one molecule in one compartment, another in another, right? But the proteins are actually what do stuff. Mm -hmm. And so this suddenly gets to the level where you're getting an ability to quickly analyze blood to see what does things. Now, does that get you to the organ level? No, it's still, I mean, this is the complexity of the human body, right? Do I know what's going on in the liver then? Well, no, I know what's going on in the blood, but we seem to learn stuff even doing these crude things that we're able to do that we actually take action on and things happen. We can make drugs and do yeah. stuff, predict things. It's crazy. Yeah. I don't know how we get so lucky, but we do all the time in medicine. We find the the, the most basic information and say, well, what if we do this? And it works. <laughs> it's, it's funny how that happens. I mean, I am amazed every day that anybody heals anything. I mean, that's an incredibly organized and difficult process all dependent on so many intrinsic factors and then bacteria, you Mm -hmm. know, and the drugs people are on. I don't know how anybody heals anything, but they do. So, I mean, the fact that we can throw monkey wrenches in the body, throw a drug in, and we don't just die instantly (laughs) has always amazed me because the signaling is so complex, right? I mean, it's so complex. How do you do that? Could you take your engine right now and dump sand in it and hope it works? I I wouldn't. We do that all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Right? That's what medicine has been is just perturb something and see if it works.
0: I'm still tripping out when you said that we found things that we don't – like the technology is there, but we haven't processed it as human beings. No. That's a no, We
2: just can't. There's not enough of us. We're just not enough people to process all <laughs> the – right? The data. That's why neural networks will become so interesting, right, mm-hmm. is because they can do things and come up with answers, and we don't know how they work really. I mean you, you feed it stuff, and it starts just – Matching results together until it seems to get the right answer, but you got to keep telling him what what the right answer yeah. is. You have to have a test set and say, no, no, that was wrong.
3: Yeah, and then he goes, oh, that was wrong. And then it
2: just <laughs> reprocesses everything and does it again. So that's kind of what this has done. This type of technology. It'll be fascinating to see what they've come up with. But the sensitivity and specificity of what I've seen so far for detecting ovarian cancer is pretty staggering. You know, and and prostate cancer and a bunch of pancreatic cancer. They have a bunch of stuff that they've. At least their data sets have shown so far that they can have a commercial test. That's wow. interesting. Yeah. That's commercialized. I mean, wow. I had never heard of it until a month ago.
1: <laughs> we we always see technology is moving at the speed of light constantly. Is biotech uh, moving at that same speed? Is I believe it... I just
2: demonstrated that.
1: Perfect. <laughs> just want to make sure in general. Um, no, because we always think like uh, we talked in the pre-show about how, you know, these long treatments or procedures kind of get left behind. And that kind of instant gratification right now of, you know.
2: Well, you're talking well, – well, hang on. We were talking about the funding for these things, right? Yeah. Funding for biotechnology is at a disadvantage because everybody wants a quick return on their investment. So, you know, technology, you can make vaporware and make millions on it. You know, it yeah. never benefits a damn person, but it sounded cool. Whereas with biological stuff, you got to go through the FDA, you've got to go through trials, you've got to spend millions on it, and at the end of the road, it may not work. Right. Right, so it's difficult to mm-hmm. do biotechnology work.
0: When you, when you say quick return, I, I wanted to circle back to, we'll call it, phase two of the enlightenment of the blood work that you said that, well, people have moved on. Are there still people working on that, trying to wrap their heads around it? No, or no, 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 a, no, This oh, okay. is commercial
2: tests. Okay. So the, what I'm saying is that the commercial test for doing so-called liquid biopsies has just recently reached a critical mass to be orderable. Mm-hmm. And we still are not quite converted to it completely. We're still using tissue biopsies because that's the more tried and true technology, but it's, I mean, honestly, all of this stuff is 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 we're not still getting responders like we think we should when we find a result in the blood of X, Y, Z and say, oh, well, this should be a target for this drug. It doesn't work as we expect it to. So there are people that are not responding. So obviously we don't know the picture. Hmm. So we have a piece of it. We know that there's this thing we found in X number of cells that have been interrogated and we try to use a drug and Oftentimes, it's, it enriches the chance that you will succeed with drug A, B, C, whatever you're coming up with. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, it's not the whole picture. So we don't know the whole picture. So I think the idea of going to the ground level where now you're looking at glycoproteins, which are the end product of all the things we just talked about, DNA yeah. to RNA to protein to modification to this, those are the things that stick out in the blood and 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 do stuff, right? They do stuff and they're secreted. And so it'll be very interesting. And there's very tantalizing results they have about how these things are modified in cancer. And they, uh, they obviously are associated with cancer and we just don't, it's just so labor intensive to look at that. It hasn't grown. But now what I'm saying is you've just short circuited that by the ability to mass process samples. So now instead of taking one PhD, eight months to look at some data, you can do it in eight minutes now we can take lots of samples from lots of people and see if it makes any sense, and then train that computer system to say, "Well, no, no, that's what you're looking at." Uh-huh. See wow. what I'm saying? And so, and then what if you multiplex it and you look at multiple things at once? I mean, that goes to another level of complexity that we haven't talked about. If you're just looking at one protein, well, what if you look at a bunch of them? You know, I mean, all these things remain unanswered because the this, this stuff just showed up.
0: Yeah. How? I mean, do you do you have to study all the time to stay up? To speed with with what they're doing in the technology world, I mean, how do you how do you? Well,
2: they had a bunch of papers, and you know, when we reached out to them and talked to them, they gave give me more reading. But yeah, you read scientific papers. We do it all the time in oncology because a lot of times we obsolete our old treatments um, quite frequently. There are national guidelines from certain you know groups that talk about, hey, do this with this, do this with that. But it's never a hundred percent precise, and certainly never covers recurrent situations. I mean, they talk about guidelines for things that work in the initial treatment of X, Y, Z, right? But then once you get beyond that with recurrence, you know, you don't have those guidelines anymore. So we read a lot about guidelines, but then we're always having to read papers to try to figure out what is the most recent data, you know, and we have, luckily there's good librarians. We can get those papers. It's not a problem, but you have to, you have to look stuff up all Mm -hmm. the time. And it's not just looking up a textbook. It's not just looking up, you know, um, WebMD. I mean, it's you, you have to actually go to the scientific papers themselves and look at them and say, what is the level of evidence that we're talking about? What is the size of the population we're looking at? And unfortunately, as you know, with any statistics, small population means we can get the yeah. wrong answer. I mean, if you look at big randomized controlled trials, right, they can get the wrong answer a lot. Oh, yeah. you know, it's just built into the statistics, right? right? I mean, you can get the, you can be misled doing the right thing and get the wrong answer, so that's why science changes because something will replace that and make us question what we're doing. Do you do you
0: have specific people or journals that you prefer to read? I mean, because you also have to look at who's writing what and, and maybe what who's behind the writing in the sense.
2: Yeah, you do, and so all of that gets weighed in. But um, unfortunately, because gynecologic disease is a relatively rare frequency compared to say breast cancer. I mean, those patients outnumber us a thousand to one, right? So, I mean, when the incidence of something is 10% in the population, and for me it's 1.3%, well, maybe not 1,001. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but yeah. you know what I'm saying. It's, it's just the freak relative frequency is huge compared to that. You know, they have numbers. Like when you, you go to the breast people, they say, well, this drug we added on, it gives you a 7% advantage. I can never say that because I don't have quite that level of granularity (laughs) to talk about stuff. I mean, you can talk about gross stuff and you know, this study showed that this study showed that, but it's a lot of it is small studies, small reason. Some are reasonably big, reasonably big, um, prospective studies, but we don't get like a hundred thousand patients in something or 10,000 patients. I mean, we're lucky to get a thousand. Right.
0: How do you get, when you said you're a consultant for, um, Roche, was it? Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you get connected with that gig?
2: I had been doing consulting for a lot of companies for a long time. So okay. I got addicted to it. You know, Surge RX was a drug in the I mean, drug was a company in Redwood City that was making a radio frequency tissue divider. And somehow through my relationship with the sales reps of different companies, you know, I got invited to go over and look at it. And it was so much fun talking to the engineers and interacting with people that have never seen a patient and they're making stuff. And you can kind of bridge that gap. And it was a lot of fun. And then that got sold to Johnson & Johnson, and the company disappeared. And then I, just, then I went to Johnson & Johnson, and I did stuff for them. And then I did stuff for Valley Labs that are making the ligature device. And then I did stuff for um, all these other companies like Endocyte that started making a drug chemotherapy with a radiographic marker on it, and we did clinical trials for that. And then I started doing clinical trials on my own in 2006, and I was doing clinical trials and made my own little clinical trials company bringing, you know, Drugs into the Bay Area when there were no clinical trials here in 2000. And I ran that little company for about five years. You know, we did cooperative group clinical trial stuff. And then I started getting into hyperthermia and wrote that trial. And so all of this sort of conglomerated so people would invite me to consult. So now I'm consulting for Verb Surgical, making the new robot for Johnson & Johnson. Um, I'm consulting for Roche, as I mentioned, for this project called Navify, where they're trying to automate tumor board information. Um... This new company Interven just asked me to consult for them. Um, I got a company NeoClose, which is making closure devices for laparoscopy. I've just gotten used to it. I was uh, part of the big trial that got indocyanine um, green, the dye that is that glows green when a laser hits it. Okay. So we use it for looking for bowel injuries and you know looking for tissue viability because it goes to the vascular system if you inject it in a vein, and you can see if stuff is missing. You know, if it doesn't glow, it's got a hole in its, you know, perfusion. Well, they found we can use it to do sentinel node um, mapping where you inject into a tissue and you follow its lymphatics and you light it up with a laser and you can see what nodes are positive, like they do in breast. Have wow. you ever seen sentinel node? Well, i seen. So they do it with breasts now, right? They I think we, do, we heard about it with um, Dr. Patel over the breast center. Yeah, so you yeah. find one node to interrogate instead of getting all the nodes out and letting someone's limb swell, right? Hmm. Well, we figured out in gynecology we could do it with blue dye, but it didn't work very well. And then indosign and green, people started messing with and using a laser for. And a company in Canada called Novadac made a laparoscopic laser, and I got invited to, to consult with them. And then um, MD Anderson, Sloan Kettering, and guys I knew that I trained with, or, well, they, some of them were, were training me, and the MD Anderson was where I was rotating as a resident, so I knew those guys. They couldn't finish the cooperative trial without our assistance. We had done, like, 250 of these cases, and we just did it off-label. Mm-hmm. And so they brought us on board to finish their clinical trial. So we got published with their, their trial that approved icg dye for mapping of cervix and endometrial cancer sentinel nodes. So I got involved in that too. And so, you know, this goes all round robin and people just ask you to join projects because you've done stuff before.
0: I just love yeah. that you're ru- like, you're running in a circle way up here. I mean, did you ever, I mean, high school, college, did you, did you foresee doing all these things? Or this no.
2: is, yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> I didn't know what I was going to do.
0: <laughs> no, I know. And, and what I what I love most is that, you know, in seeing you like just your body language. Like you, your your eyes light up when you talk about these things, and it's so so cool to see and feel your energy talking about these things. And like you say, you don't know how you're going to wake up tomorrow. How does your body do that? But something cool is going to happen tomorrow, and you're you're just excited about it. I think it's so awesome.
2: Yeah, I mean, the biotechnology comes from private companies doing things. All advances have come from companies doing things. So I want to be there with them and help them do things and hopefully help them avoid clinical mistakes because things can be presented poorly to the system and fail just because of the way they presented, not because the underlying technology is bad, Mm -hmm. but they just made a bad error interacting with people, right? And we know the environment and the ORs, and we know clinical environment, we know... Mm -hmm. Office environments, and I know clinical trials inside and out because we also did whole body hyperthermia a while back in 2012. Mm-hmm. I was the chief medical officer of a startup that I made with these guys, and we founded something that treated. We treated ten pigs with a hyperthermia circuit for the whole body, so we heated we heated uh, pigs up to 40, 40 at two degrees, and did the same to ten ovarian cancer patients as well. So we had an FDA trial there. So i i have a I have a soft spot for startup companies are doing biotech because I had lived it and it was just Mm -hmm. difficult. It was hard to raise money. Um, Um, it was brutal, brutal hours, you know, I get it. So, I mean, I have a little bit of that in me of saying I really want to help you guys. And then also that's where all the advancements come from. Right. Right. They don't come out of the university. They come out of, you know, people trying (laughs) to do stuff.
0: Right. Has there, I'm always curious what your answer is going to be when I ask questions like this. Um, has there been something that they've been doing that you just, ethically or just somewhere you're like, yeah, I can't get on board with this or everything's been.
2: No, because I mean, I mean like falsifying data or something like that. I haven't seen it personally. I know it's happened. I mean, look at Theranos, right? Right. I mean, sure. There's crooks everywhere. Um, but no, I mean, I haven't seen anybody uh, make bad science. I've seen people make products that were just not designed well or clunky, mm-hmm. but I haven't seen anybody do something that didn't make sense.
0: Right. I mean, maybe the only thing off the top of my head is for years we did CPR normally. And, you know, it's kind of violent and you crack ribs. But then they came out with the two devices that that do CPR, automated CPR, the the two things that you strap over their chest. They work, but, boy, they they look funky,
2: man. I don't know. Well, right. But what did the data say? Data is good. Okay. just – there you have it.
0: I know, I know. I don't think
2: that's an example of what you're talking about. You're saying, has somebody done something unethical that's right, obvious right. and everyone runs along with it? Um, no, I mean, I haven't seen people do medically unethical things. I've seen lots of people do business unethical things. I mean, thats I think that's a little bit different. I mean, I guess people consider that a victimless crime. I, I don't, but.
0: No, I. Um, I know you do, you know, looping back to the treatments and as much as I want to get next to this one, but you do uh, robotic surgery, right? Like that's uh-huh, one of the, sure. so <clears throat> walk us through a little bit. I mean, what you, Da Vinci, right?
2: Is that- sure. So there's currently one robot out. And as I mentioned, I'm working on a Johnson and Johnson robotic system. Mm. It's been, they've been in the works for a couple of years, but um, you know, to me, um, I do, I'm a little faster laparoscopically. So I was doing, I did the first robotic gynecologic oncology case in the state. Okay. So that was back in, I don't remember, 2005 again, I think, okay. 2005, something like that. But And I did a lot of them at first, but then I just found I was faster not doing it robotically. And it's the same thing. I mean, it's just minimally invasive surgery. That's mm-hmm. all it is. Now, there are robots that are doing things people can't. Like the orthopedics have robots that line stuff up perfectly. And then there's um, robots that can snake into spaces people can't operate in, like down the trachea, you know, in the lungs and, and whatnot. So to me... A robotic, has to, a robotic system, to be meaningful, has to do things beyond what a human being can do. And currently, the system is, you know, it sits at the patient's bedside, and it does the same thing you can do with your hands. Now, some people like it. You know, they say, oh, it feels more comfortable. I get it mm-hmm. when they say, hey, it's more ergonomic. I'd rather sit in a chair and look through the periscope than lean over the body. But there's advantages and disadvantages to that, because when you're at the patient's bedside, you can see what's going on. You can direct your assistance better. Um, I don't know, just faster to me, and and I can. I think it's a little more cosmetic to do it laparoscopically for women. I can hide my incisions. Mm. Okay, Um, they don't. You know, they're a little bit different positioned with a robot. But you know, some people swear by it, and I've been there, done that. (laughs) (laughs) Can you can you talk about the Johnson
0: Johnson one, or is that still under wraps? I
2: cannot. (laughs) (laughs) I finally stumped him on a technicality. (laughs) It's not a technicality. It's called an NDA.
1: (laughs) Well. Do you think at some point in the future with technology, AI, neuromaps and everything that we will finally figure out, you know, all cancer, just be able to treat every single thing that's happening to the human
2: body? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, again, you're, it's like Yogi Berra said, the hardest thing about predictions is they're about the future. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's probably a butchering of that quote, but it's true. I mean, who knows? I don't know. I mean, do you think people that were driving horse and buggies could imagine airplanes? No. I know i mean no. <clears throat> yeah, i just kind of feel like the deeper you go the more you're gonna find the deeper i go the more ignorant i get because the yeah. more i realize that there's far more that i don't know than what i do know
0: yeah i think i read somewhere recently that when the wright brothers were doing like their first test flights <laughs> there was uh, a national newspaper or national journal or something like that where they wrote like flying will never happen because of this physics and xyz and they're basically writing out why it won't happen. And literally at the same time, those guys in North Carolina were flying. Yeah. Um, so uh, it'd be
2: awesome if they flew over the desk that the guy was writing. in. That <laughs> <elevator>. <laughs> that's probably an apocryphal
0: story. <laughs> Poor guy. He's got to rip it <laughs> up. He's like, Hate my Yeah, no, that's probably just
1: an anomaly. do it again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so do you get in? So obviously we're, we talk a lot, you know, we talk a lot about cancer. Um, I think a lot of people, um, Radiation and chemo. I mean, is that something mm-hmm. you you do? You give? I remember you said you had you you couldn't do one. Talk well, a little tactic,
2: about. It. Well, we're not trained to actually perform radiation therapy, but we okay. when we're, during our training we spend time with the radiation oncologists and sort of learn what they do, just to know okay. what they do. Now the only uh, exception to that is that you know we can put uh, brachytherapy devices into the vagina, like there's needle systems and tandem and ovoid systems. They're little contraptions that have radiation built in that you can load into the tips. Hmm. And so we we do some of that. Um, But generally, it's it's not the thrust of what we're doing. Mostly the radiation oncologists do it themselves now. Um, We are trained with chemotherapy. I certainly am licensed to do it. Uh-huh. I just don't because of the practicality, as you mentioned, we go a, a great distance, and a lot of our patients are from say Monterey County or Salinas and whatnot and they 're not about to drive up here every three weeks to get treatment. so it makes much more sense to refer to the medical oncologists around and luckily, all of the ones I interact with are excellent, okay, so I have no problem you know sending them back to the medical oncologist to get their treatments and it's convenient the patient's right there yeah you know, they can go home you know they it's just they can be family members can pop in it's just it's, it's better than having them all drive to San Jose to do stuff. Are and you able so, to do
1: like a brief, over, brief overview of how chemo works, different types of chemo? Is that anything that well, you?
2: Brief, <laughs> uh, brief well, for the I podcast. Mean, yeah. <laughs> I, well, I guess on, on, a, on a grand level, the best take-home message is that cancer cells are dysfunctional. And so if you, if you inhibit parts of what they're doing, they may self-destruct. Okay. So the chemotherapy will disrupt some biologic process that they find really important and can't repair, Hmm. and you, your cells can. And radiation is an example of that too. So you know, radiation breaks DNA strands, and you have great mechanisms for fixing DNA strands. You do it all the time. You know, the sun hits you, and some cosmic ray blasts through you. You fix it, or you destroy the cell. You know, one or the other. So. What happens is some kind of damage will happen, the cell can 't repair it, it gets destroyed so that 's what chemotherapy does and that hopefully gets
1: rid of all of it because there 's no real source to create more cancer cells. It just well, started with one cell
2: and sort. replicated so The answer is is that most diseases are not necessarily cured by chemotherapy, but rather controlled. So Hmm. what'll happen is, is even cancer cells can recover from a lot of damage that they do. And so sort of like treating bacteria with an antibiotic, you know, you'll develop a resistant core if it's given chronically or whatnot, and some bacteria will just randomly have the resistance and it'll grow back or something like that. And if there's no immune system to go clean it up, you know, that's where you get trouble. Well, the same thing happens with cancer cells. You'll, it's, chemotherapy is given on what's called fractional cell kill, where a fixed percentage of the cells will die in a ball of tumor, at least this is the theory, right? And then you just give cycles of it so that the next round of chemotherapy is getting another fraction, and the idea is to get it down to just a couple of cells that aren't biologically significant. Hmm. Now, some diseases we cure outright with chemotherapy. So even with ovarian cancer, once we do surgery and chemotherapy, roughly 20% of them after the first treatment won't recur with high-stage disease. So you can have stage 3 disease which is our most common meaning it's spread in the peritoneal cavity we do our thing and 2 out of 10 just somehow walk away from it. Wow. Now is that the immune system? Is that the susceptibility of the cells? We don't know because we can't see at that level. We're in a, in a, unable as human beings to see that. Time tells us the answer. You know, if it doesn't come back, well I guess we won. <laughs> you know. So that's the point is mm-hmm. that that's how it works. So it, it biologically disrupts some process. That process is essential to the cells. Those cells that are disrupted in that fashion that cannot recover die or are cleaned up by the immune system or something. And then the rest of those that made it through have to go through the process again. And so that's why you'll hear people say, well, I did one chemotherapy and I switched to another. Well, at some point, that ball of cells may be completely um, compensated for the drug you're giving. It pumps it out of itself or whatnot. Mm. That's a common mechanism. Um, and then other chemotherapies may be related to that and get the same treatment so that the chemotherapy doesn't really work on those cells. So it all depends. The diseases are all different. Depends what we're talking about. Um, it's not all the same, and the drugs have wildly different mechanisms. You know, Some are in dis- disrupting DNA. Some are disrupting proteins. I mean, it depends on what it's doing.
0: Do some patients opt out of chemo and only do surgery? Well, it depends. So meaning. You, it's advised, but they like, no, I, I don't want to go through chemo, but I'll let you there cut. There
2: have been people that have done that, sure. Okay. We strongly don't advise that. Because like okay. I said, you're now forfeiting your 20% right up front, right? If, those, if you're assuming a stage three patient who comes in for surgery and we said, you're going to do surgery, then you're going to do chemotherapy. Then later they say they're not going to do it. We strongly encourage them to do it. Uh-huh. And there's a reason. Most people tolerate it really, really well. Has it gotten better
0: or is it about the same as far well, as? Well, from when
2: uh, I was in fellowship, there was only really one drug that was really effective in improving nausea, right? So the big bugaboo of the past was people would throw up all the time from chemotherapy. And those stories persist to this day. Mm. They're pretty much a thing of the past. Okay. So there's a lot of support drugs that have come up that have been miraculous. And there's just new ones come up all the time that prevent nausea and vomiting from chemotherapy. So that's one big thing that people don't want to do all the time Mm -hmm. is not eat, you know. Right. Shockingly, right? But the point is, is that that is a thing of the past. And then there's another thing that happens where it was knocking down the normal white blood cell count. People were getting more infections, but now there's drugs to combat that too. So the two big things that are really the biggest number of complaints from people have been eliminated. So, yeah, people tolerate chemotherapy really well. And then there's the other problem is all the stories that come from this are from quite advanced disease. So people say, oh, chemotherapy killed my family member. No, the cancer did. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. it just means that things we ran out of things to do. So, yeah. I mean, but, and, but does chemotherapy make people feel wiped out and tired? Absolutely. Sure mm-hmm. it does. But not as much as people think it will. And you never know until you start. Okay. So you can always stop a drug you don't like.
0: Yeah. How long, so typically, uh, you know, I know that you said they might get chemo before the surgery, but typically how long is the course of chemo when it comes to treating your patients?
2: Well, stereotypically for ovarian cancer, it's given every three weeks on the the most common schedule. Sometimes it's given weekly on a different dose or whatnot, but there, there are two drugs we commonly give and they're given for six cycles. Again, this is how we came up with cycles is the fractional cell kill. That's the theoretical number it takes to take the tumor down to undetectable. If hmm. there was a tumor you could see, right, a gross tumor that you can actually see, so that's the idea. Is that's where that number came from? Mm-hmm. Um, so people will do that three weeks apart. So eighteen weeks there is the last the last dose is te- technically eighteen weeks if there's no delays.
0: Do you consult with uh, the medical oncologist who's giving the chemo? Do they? Do you guys talk and say this uh-huh. is? Oh, okay. So every everyone. Yeah. Knows. So they'll get
2: okay. they'll get the notes. You know all the diagnostic stuff. I'll give them a call and tell them what's going on. Um, you know, give them the short form of what's happening and if it's really complex and something unusual and we're gonna be talking a whole lot more. Uh-huh. But you know, generally things are upfront, pretty obvious, you know, first time person naive to treatment, then everyone kinda of knows what to do.
0: Okay. Okay. Uh do you want to jump into your your trial
2: with the, uh, hypothermia? <laughs> the hypothermia. Oh, hyperthermia. Yeah. So high PEC is what you're talking about, right? Yes. Okay. The one where you're flushing, right? Yes. Okay. So that's that's a treatment that's been around for a while. As I mentioned, it was invented by Sugar Baker, a general surgeon in Chicago, and he made his own apparatus to heat the abdominal cavity after surgery is, has removed all tumor, and this was for GI tumors, and he would make a bath out of it and then put chemotherapy right in the bath. And it turns out from lab experimental data, that's why he did it, is that, you know, cells that are subjected to higher temperatures respond better to chem- certain chemotherapies. Hmm. So at 42 degrees, it's much better than your body temperature, which is 37 degrees. And the temperature itself may also kill cancer cells as well, and what we know it does. Hmm. So at 42 degrees, certain cancer cells will be tipped into to, to, uh, dying because they've kind of run out of their compensatory mechanism to handle heat. So we have these chaperone proteins in our bodies called heat shock proteins, not surprisingly, that were probably... And I mean, every cell on the earth has these types of proteins in it. They're little chaperone proteins that when you get overheated, they kind of glom onto the unfolded and messed up proteins and hold on to them until conditions get better, and then refold them and put them back into the right place.
1: That makes sense, because that's an immune response to get rid of a you know virus or foreign invader to it's not up.
2: immune this is the the, the heat oh it's yeah heat. so
1: we'll yeah, so create a fever and your yeah, body is yeah, kind of holding everything steady while it heats up to kill whatever it
2: is yeah right but but most fevers don't go to 42 yeah <laughs> right? that's, like a, that's high <laughs> but the, the the idea is similar but the, I think this was more for extremes of temperature like you know being desiccated in the sun mm. you know so those those proteins are overloaded because the cancer cells are using them to do something else. They're hijacking them to handle other messed up proteins that they've got because cancer cells are quite messed up. They don't biologically work very well. And so these heat shock proteins are all revved up. And if you just push the system a little and they run out of that stuff, then they die. Wow. So the temperature itself can be directly toxic to cancer cells. And then on top of that we know by experimental data and animal data that they, that things like cisplatin, which is a common chemotherapy drug work better at 42 degrees than they do at room temperature or body temperature. I should say not room temperature. So anyhow, we, that's, that technique was pioneered by sugar baker. Nobody believed him. Um, the technique took off in Europe. Um, and then it came back to the United States, 2004, 2005 with a group of, guys that put together an apparatus to treat, um, AIDS originally. Mm. So there was a whole body device, whole body hyperthermia device to, to heat blood up for AIDS, but then the AIDS drugs came out. And so that project went to the dogs <laughs> and then they took that type of technology and said, well, why don't we just heat up the abdominal cavity? Cause there's evidence to do that. And they made a commercial device that got through FDA to heat the abdominal cavity and they could sell it now commercially. So when I ran across this, it was at one of our professional meetings. And, you know, everyone knows about hyperthermia because it's used in other modalities for cancer. It's not unknown. It's been in lots of places in the world. They heat people up and treat cancers with it. And We do that here too. And But in 2005, it wasn't very popular. There was about 21 sites in the U.S. that were doing it. I went ahead and contacted the reps, got them out here to get Sam. Um, we wrote a clinical trial because at that time, it was considered way out there, right? So we wrote a clinical trial under our institutional review board, which is an ethics board. I wrote the trial with uh, Dr. Bastidas, who you oh, probably have interviewed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, And um, we wrote a trial, got them to lease the equipment, and we started doing it. So we've done now that since 2006 on trial. It's been pretty successful. We have about a 40% five-year survival in our first two cohorts, cohorts of patients in the first two five-year runs. Um, for recurrent ovarian cancer, which is pretty amazing, and the same thing with gi cancer so and that 's similar to what other people are seeing too it 's not like we 're just doing it and we have some magic way of doing it that 's better than everyone else it 's we 're doing the same thing that other people are doing, only there are differences in the way people run their different protocols there 's little tweaks and and whatnot and at the time, we had set up with two registries, one in Boston and one in Uh, louisville kentucky for registering all the cancer patients for ovarian cancer and gi cancer but unfortunately those academic institutions fell apart you know for those programs and those guys went off to different programs so the registries fell apart left us all on our own to do hyperthermia in isolation so it's been controversial forever because we can't ever build up enough data to prove that it's the greatest thing to do now in europe they have quite a bit of data and it's very interesting Uh but in the u.s it's sort of lagged and you know we're so ethnocentric, we don't ever believe what happens overseas in papers. So <laughs> <laughs> we have problems with that. So anyhow, U.S. data has lagged behind others. But there, it's, it's growing, and there's a lot more programs than, than before. And even Stanford caught up and started doing it last year. So, With programs
1: like this, is it lag because there's no real, I guess, money-making market
2: behind it? Um, you're talking about the device development? Or you're talking, or about- just
1: even the treatment. It seems like some of these treatments where it's not a pill, it's not something they can sell.
2: Well, is, this, is that- this treatment is particularly difficult because the surgical skill set you have to develop, and we learned this in the first five years of the trial. We got better at it as we did it because you, we were forced to operate on people that were recurrent multiple times. And a lot of them, honestly, they just threw them at us at the last ditch instead yeah. of earlier like they should have been. The surgeries were a lot more brutal. Um, super time-consuming, bloodier than they are now. I mean, it took a lot to learn who to select and try to get people to send people earlier than they did. So anyhow, we learned all that. And it's, it's a time-consuming procedure. It mm-hmm. takes a long time to re-re-re-operate on someone or re-re-operate on yeah. someone than it does to operate on someone. So a typical ovarian cancer case will take me two and a half hours. This can take four. You know. wow. And then the hyperthermia itself is run on a pump that sits off off the bed, and there's a heater there. And the perfusionist, like a cardiac perfusionist, yeah. is there. And we put the tubing in the abdomen. One's a return tube and one's a you know a, a flow tube. And we close the skin over it, and it makes a little tent. And okay. the, the fluid circulates, and we agitate it. And then we dump chemotherapy in that when it reaches 42 degrees and do it for 90 minutes. Hmm. so not only do you have to be willing to do a difficult surgery and select patients and oftentimes select patients that are sicker than the rest but you have to also be sitting around for 90 minutes more i mean the economic gradient would be well why don't i do two more surgeries during all that time or three more or whatever so it takes patience and effort and a combined skill set between different specialties it's It's not easy. Yeah. So that's why I think it hasn't really grabbed on, you know, and then when the data was never in one place for everyone to agree, it's a great idea, plenty of room to argue whether or not you should be doing it. And to get into the game, you're going to have to do some brutal surgery and, you know, suffer the consequences when it doesn't go well. Mm. So I think there's a lot of barriers.
0: How do you, how do you
2: broach it with a patient to tell them to be part of a clinical trial? Oh, well, like any clinical trial, you give them their risk and their benefit. Uh I mean, and there was enough data always to show that there could be good benefit from that. So it was never, it was never a question that someone couldn't benefit from it, and that it was totally experimental. No, there was there were a number of programs in Europe that had been doing it for years, and there were like there were twenty one programs when we started. So it was not like out out of the blue field. Okay,
0: it's not
1: like I you know I had to stream the last night that this might work. No, <laughs> pop into the OR and- yeah, no,
2: it was nothing like that. And I think, unfortunately, since our consent form dates back to that original time, the IRB has been incredibly conservative. Our form scares people away, and the data has gotten better. The data shows less injury. So, for, for example, there's a Dutch trial that looked at primary ovarian cancer. And they said, we'll take people and give them three cycles of chemotherapy, then we'll operate, and then we'll give them three more. Or we'll do that, but make one of those hyperthermia surgery, right? And they found no difference in the side effects of surgery. It was exactly the same. And it was a randomized trial. Hmm. So clearly it's not this heat or the time you spend with this pump. It's about patient selection and how much surgery they've had previously, which will cause problems or not. Mm -hmm. So, and that paper's published and it's there. And so it's not about that. It's about how far along are you with how advanced is your cancer? Are we re, re, re operating on you? You know, that, that becomes a factor. And that's where you get most of your problems from any surgeries. You have to reoperate on organs you someone else did a while ago.
0: Right. I think you said, you know, there's, there's a lot of nuances to every situation. There's no right exact answer. Correct. And, yeah. Was it harder to do, a, to do it here because we're not an academic institution at Good Sam? Uh,
2: I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, we're more nimble. So the meetings that we have here are less bureaucratic and less political. So in an academic center, everything's about politics. So, well, I mean, that's an over-exaggeration. But the point is, is there's a lot of politics injected into academic centers. And there's a lot of resources that you have to take from someone else to do something. So, you know, there's a lot of things go into it. Here, it's not so much because the the capacity was there. The willingness of us to do all the work was there. (laughs) So, yeah, it wasn't that big of a deal. I had to do a lot of splaining, right? I mean, (laughs) you would think I walked out of the wall with two heads when I first walked in the room and told him what I wanted to do. But, you know, after sharing the science, I mean, we got practical, smart people here. And the answer was we can either let these people die and get no chance Mm. or we can try something that looks like it has some pretty good numbers out there. Now, they don't all match because everyone's in their own little silo doing the same thing. So all the publicated publications at the time were sort of all over the map, but certainly somebody benefited. And the IRB saw that. They're a scientific board. They looked at it and said, okay, you're right. Let's just make sure that the ethics match what we're trying to do and the form looks scary enough, <laughs> right, to tell people what they're getting into. And so our form is incredibly scary. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you read other um, forms on this, and people were doing it off trial. I mean, there was a guy that was doing it down at um, Mills Peninsula just without any kind of IRB or clinical trial form or anything like that. But we didn't think that was the right way to go. We wanted to tabulate our toxicity, the things that happen that are bad, and make sure everyone could see it. So there would be no question that we were doing the right thing.
0: Do you have to educate Nursing staff, when they take care afterwards, so that everyone's on board, or
2: how do you? Now, I, no. Okay. Now, everyone's used to it. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, it's another one of those. No. <laughs> but then, sure. I mean, there was constantly people going, what the heck are you doing? How could you heat somebody that doesn't that cook the brain? Mm. Right? I mean, all these things no. come up, and they, they know, and, and legitimately, right? If you're wondering, if someone's coming around doing something that you have no idea, you've never heard of it before, well, you should probably ask questions.
0: did you get a lot of questions from physicians, you know, in the, in the lounge or constantly? Yeah.
2: Constantly. Yeah. Sure. Were you prepared for that? Yeah. Okay. I wrote the damn trial. I better be. (laughs) I mean, right. I mean, you have to be right. You're not going to just write something and say, yeah, whatever. Suck it. Just read the consent and talk to me later. No, it's not going to be that way. And they're not going to take the time to do that out of their day. They're going to ask tough questions and you better be prepared to answer them.
3: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you know, speaking of fame, we, we talked about in the pre-show, you, you had a brush with fame and I'm, it was a really good discussion in the pre-show about how you handle fame and the concerns, pros and cons, I guess, of it all are all con
2: for Infamy, you. Infamy, not fame. Well, right, right. <laughs> yeah, a little bit different. So you're talking about um, the resuscitation right. of a court, uh, uh, a jury member. Right. Yeah, so this was, what year was that?
0: Sixteen, seventeen,
2: 17, I think. I don't remember now. It's that was a well back. blur. But I was involved in a patient who was suing us for malpractice um, over her understanding of a consent form. Mm-hmm. And just to cut to the chase, it was baseless. They lost, and they had to pay our trial costs. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, I mean, it's all our free right to you know, mm. question anything. And unfortunately, with our medical system, there's really no way to find out the truth without discovery. Right. So we have a sad system because we don't have a way to tell people and reassure them, hey, what happened to you is normal. You know, What you heard is normal. We don't really have that. So on the one hand, we all lose when these things happen. But there is no system or service that can say, no, no, we looked it over. It looks OK. You, know, you just have to sue and see what happens. So anyhow, this happened. And during jury selection in Oakland, um, I my paralegal that was with my lawyer, and Barry Marsh is amazing. He was my lawyer at the time. and He had a paralegal who was amazing. She's a um, ICU nurse. Oh, okay. I don't know if I should mention her name because it was never mentioned in anything else, so I'm going to leave it out. But she's amazing. Mm-hmm. And she was an ex-ER ICU nurse. And she, um, we were walking out of the courtroom for a recess when the security guard poked his head in and say hey, there's an incident outside, just so you know. I'm like, okay. And there, at the time, there was some kind of riot going on outside. I don't know what it was about, but okay. some kind of public unrest. So I figured someone must have got hurt or something. I didn't know. And as we walked out, there was a crowd of people in the lobby, and there were legs sticking out of the crowd. So there was a man down, and we attended him, and we got out the AD, um, and we put it on him, and we resuscitated him. Turns out he was a juror. In our case, so during jurisdiction, it turned out that was the case. So when we went back in, they uh, opposing counsel decided that no one should know that physicians save lives and that would make it look biased. So he flushed the case, and the, <laughs> the judge agreed, which I found appalling because you know I had canceled cases, I mean, mm-hmm. their patients were not yeah. seeing more time to be spent, and it'd been it'd already been years getting to that point, right? So it's a ton of it's devastating to have people go through and lose that level of trust and you can't fix it. Mm -mm. And they're convinced that you're evil and it's just, it's terrible, you know, and we had a really good rapport going into it. So you never know. And really there was no harm. So that's would even, what's even weirder. Right. No one got hurt. So anyway, um, sucked. But when that happened, what I didn't know is that there was a court reporter that walked into the courtroom, and I don't know if you know this, but during a civil case, it's not—I guess if I don't even know if it's true for criminal, but anyone can walk into a courtroom and listen. Yeah,
1: I've had to uh, testify a few times for EMS cases, and the door's just open. Just people just walk in. walk in, have it's, a seat. You'll see a bunch of like uh, law students that'll sit like in the front rows yeah. and take notes and pay attention. I had no idea. Yeah, it's
2: weird. I had no idea. I'd never been inside a court no. before. I just learned
0: it. I was reading uh, Walter Williams, my, one of my favorite economists, his biography where he's studying economics, but he loved the law. So he said, with downtime between classes, you just go to the courthouse and just go watch cases. And I was like, wait, that's a thing? Yeah, I know. So, it's,
2: somehow it seems wrong to me, but it's true. And so anyhow, this court reporter was there and she was talking to Barry Marsh beforehand and she was an Offspring fan. <laughs> <laughs> so she was going to write an article that said, Lilia sued malpractice, Offspring drummer. That was what the article was going to read. Mm-hmm. But then this happened. And so I guess she turned around and sold it to Reuters or some news service. And that night it exploded and it went all over the world. It went to Mexico city, London, James Corden did a monologue on it. I don't know if you saw that. No. Yeah. It was a nightmare. So all of this took off and I just assumed, and our phones were ringing off the hook. They found my wife's cell phone number, my cell phone number. I don't know how they found it, but reporters were calling us and it was crazy. And so I just assumed my career was over. Yeah. Right? Nationally known. Guy gets sued. Bad man. Right. right? Yes. I just thought that was the story that was gonna roll. But through some miracle of fate, nobody cared. They all just cared about the drummer, surgeon, resuscitation. They just focused on that. And weirdly, wow. it was never about why I was there. Um, and so anyhow, it went wild for a while. We didn't answer the phones. We didn't comment. And I just watched this unfold figuring I'm done. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to wash dishes the rest of my life. What am I going to do? So it, it just went away as quickly as, you know, it came. People lost interest instantly, like most news articles and Mm -hmm. everyone forgot. Wow. Crazy time. I pray that none of you ever have something like that happen where the, you know, the, you become the chew toy of the media.
0: I, yeah, I can't, I mean, you must, I mean, everything you've built, everything you've worked so hard to get to where you are could have been, it could have evaporated.
2: Yeah, could have evaporated, yeah. But on the good side, there's always a silver lining, right? The plaintiff decided that this would be a circus the next time around, and to go through a full jury trial would oh, be yeah. insane. And what would have been horrible is it would have been worse for both of us if it went that way, because she would have lost. It's yeah. just. There's no basis of it. And we went to instead arbitration. Mm-hmm. So arbitration lasted three days. It was simple. Went through everything. Their expert, my expert. Nothing went wrong. Done. And luckily, I didn't have to pay the court costs. Now, it was a huge <laughs> right. cost to my patients because all that time off the, right, the time years when you're mm-hmm. dealing with this, I mean, you don't see people.
0: And you got to drive to Oakland. That's not, you know, I mean, it's.
2: Yeah, that was later, but I'm well, saying there's okay. also yeah. stuff preparing for this and going right. over everything. Meeting and, with your lawyer. Yeah, and you, then you, you start second guessing, like, well, well, wait a minute, maybe I did something wrong somehow. So, uh, did something good. Should I should have said something different. Should I've done? I? Mm-hmm. And then you lose trust, right? You're saying, I thought we had a good rapport. I thought. I thought we're all on the same side here, right? Right. It's us against the disease together. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. But then you find out, I try to help you, but you try to hurt me. I didn't think that was part of the game. I almost didn't come back. Wow. I almost said, I'm done. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it's like, if this can go wrong, nothing happened and I can get this. I was like, I may be done, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, what? I mean we we probably both have felt that in EMS kind of a thing. Like you go yeah, and help someone and all of a sudden you're helping someone, all of a sudden they jump off the gurney and start attacking you. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. why am I here? Right. Why am I doing this? This is
2: That's know. exactly the feeling. Yeah. You guys understand. It's like, what the hell? I mean, I'm just trying to help.
3: Yeah. You
0: know? Yeah. That that first time when you restrain that patient and you can't believe that you're physically holding somebody down and putting a strap on them and you're like, wait, I went to EMT school to help people, and here I am. Yeah, not fighting for my life, but uh, if I let go, he's gonna swing. Or worse, you are.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't happen to me.
1: No, I mean we. I, I, I would say probably what you think twenty five percent of EMS people probably attacked in the back of the ambulance.
0: I'd say if you wait long it. enough, you, it's gonna
2: happen to everyone. Yeah,
1: I had it. You know, fighting a patient in the back of the ambulance. Luckily, to get out, kind of a thing. God. PD, yeah, miserable.
2: Yeah. Yeah. well, and the cops. I mean, both poor guys. I mean, they just. Oh. I mean, I know some of them personally, and it's just the stories they tell. I don't know how they go back to work. No, it's well, how do
1: it. Yeah, it's a it's a calling for them to be able to go back and deal with the stuff they deal with. Because at least with you know, if we have bad days, EMS physicians, stuff like that. I mean, people are for the most part happy to see us. You're here to come help me. And PD shows up. What ninety percent of the time, it's they're looking. For why for the are the bad you here? <laughs> yeah, they're
2: selecting. Yeah. them. they're looking for them and showing up. Yeah. Now, it was you know we
0: again in the pre-show when we mentioned we we've interviewed a couple of chiefs of police and we interviewed the chief of San Jose police and for both Garrett and I because we've transported police officers who've been injured and it's a, it's a mental trip for me and I think even Garrett once you get him out of that uniform and you see that you know that just that white undershirt and you re- it's just a human you know just a human who's got you know a wife or a husband and probably kids or whatever the case may be. Um, and it's it's weird to see them when when you've cut off that you know the,
2: the outer shirt
1: and oh seeing them off duty it's just so unrecognizable it's hard to recognize them from plain clothes to uniform yeah. yeah I don't know what it is
2: sure and everyone should have the skill to compartmentalize right and not take oh. their work home to you <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right oh yeah that would be bad. <laughs> Yeah, there have been a couple times when I mean i would
0: be actually scared, you know, in the back. Because the worst ones, I guess, are the ones where we didn't know it was going to happen. Sometimes you knew they were going to fight, and you just you get that that ping of violence. But a few, I didn't even mean, that sixth sense. It was just zero to hero, and I was like, wait, what's going on? And you're in, you know, save your life mode.
2: Yeah,
1: there's little things that you always and your partner would always have in the back of your mind. Dog in the road. Dog in the road. I never. I had think these was those always those a big one. one. So um, dog in the road was you have someone that takes their seatbelts off, tries to attack you. You grab onto the handrails above you as tight as you can. Yell "Dog in the road!" Partner slams on the brakes. Oh, there's so that is a person dog in the middle of
0: the road and doesn't the... know,
1: like to say, like "Hold on!" Slam on the brakes. They prepare themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: they go flying, and you've got just enough time to hop out the back doors. And
1: oh, and if they're intoxicated enough. You get out, and you lock the doors. And they don't have the <laughs> floor right to know how to unlock the doors. Well, they'll trash the back, but you know you're safe. Just pray there's no PCP. Uh, and that's I haven't seen that too much lately. One, that was a big
0: thing, maybe about 10 got, years ago. We had a PCP guy, and the, the details came out. Um, patient is high on PCP. He's in the backyard. He thinks he's a tiger. He's fighting with himself. And I was stoked. I couldn't wait. I was like, we were going to play Eye of the Tiger, and we were going to see this guy just going You do nuts. have songs when you go into some of these guy or... was calm, as you wouldn't believe, just sitting in the cop car with the hands behind him. What is a tranquilizer? I... <laughs>
2: I wouldn't be able to do that job. I was just going to – have you done a ride-along? No, only with um, – there was a police car I once did a ride-along with, but it wasn't – nothing happened.
0: Oh. Yeah. We can set that up if you'd like. Uh, no, I <laughs> I'll pass. So was it – Was it? so I think you got some – I think we talked about it briefly, but you got a little more notoriety where people knew you were the drum of the offspring. I mean do you get tired of – like me, or patients asking about that, or just part of no.
2: Actually, what's funny is that we've written another clinical trial. This one just for fun. My buddy um, Brian Dexter and mm-hmm. I are talking about this. There's, um, this is another freaking story. So there's, since I've had so many people ask me about it, especially as time went on in patients, I have enough of the patient population who know the band, mm-hmm. and so I want to actually do a clinical trial, and I've written it already, and I'm working with some professors at the University of Alabama where we use uh, therapeutic suggestion preoperatively to reduce anxiety. So anxiety leads to pain. Mm-hmm. So if you're anxious going into surgery, you're more likely to consume more pain, surgery, pain medicine going out. So we've written a trial where we want to combine music therapy, which works to reduce anxiety, um, thrown a couple of other factors of binaural beats and whatnot, whatever, mm-hmm. but that's a little bit off subject. But what we want to see is that hypnosis has worked for people going into surgery, but it's incredibly impractical because you have to find somebody who does it. Mm-hmm. They don't grow on trees. Yeah. <laughs> and it takes a lot of time and it's very resource consuming. And so what we wanted to do is mimic some trials that have used therapeutic suggestion by tape or whatever. You know, they like have recorded messages, video. So there have been some trials that show that's successful. But, um, we want to try it with a celebrity and see if it substitutes. So <laughs> there's a funny cool. story. So there's, <laughs> there's something called the Celebrity Recognition Scale that these researchers at University of Alabama developed for industry to say like, hey, should we put this celebrity in to sell this sock? I don't know what, right? Whatever so, product, whatever product yeah. it is. Whatever product yes. So it's something that actually has been validated to see if you recognize and approve of said celebrity. So they've done the research for them. Wow. So I found them. And I found through research, research papers. And so we're going to use that scale to test people ahead of time and randomize them to either receive a sham message or a message from Brian. And so we're going to use that as a, as a study group and see if we can substitute Rockstar for trained hypnotist. And then if that's the case, I can just use all his connections and ask people to record nice words for me. So it's a means of producing preoperative anxiety. So we have the whole trial written, but COVID put a kibosh on it because I can't oh. go down there and film him. Um, so I want to do that. I got to get a film crew down there to film him and give him a script. My hypnotist was at MD Anderson and she's kind of falling off the grid. So I, I mean, that's why Katie was asking you of local. Yeah, hypnotists.
0: No, <laughs> so uh, Dr. Kittle and I, you know, before she went to
2: med school, I mean, I've known her God, even before she went to EMT, we we would go to punk rock shows together. Perfect. I mean, (laughs) Well, that's what we need. So, I mean, we need someone like that to help us tighten up a script that could be read by any rock star. So we have to tighten it down to get the script down. And that's the one thing that's not finished. Mm -hmm. The whole trial is written. We have the computer um, questionnaire all done. And so Mm -hmm. it's all ready to go, but it got delayed by COVID and the inability to meet with people. You know, do that film stuff with him and whatnot.
0: So you're a lot bigger than I am and stronger than I am, but I'm going to play hardball. So I have something you want. You have something I want in interviewing (laughs) Dexter. So I will make my connection available if you do the same for us. Do you have a
2: camera crew? Uh, We have a – well – We do have a camera. We don't use it very well, but we have a camera. uh, I need somebody to do it. Like I need a professional camera.
0: Professional? Yeah. I could – we know, God. yeah. We know, guy. We we can
2: we can make yeah, things happen. Yeah, if they can make that happen, then the audio and the professional camera crew would need to be done. You obviously right. do audios and do it in rooms, right? So we could do that.
0: Yeah, and, and and well, and Brian did get his PhD in AIDS research for RNA, so it's not a music podcast; it's a medical one. So, and I've heard him many podcasts talking about music. I'm sure he'd love to talk about.
2: Well, no. What we'll do is we'll do this. I mean, his time is pretty tight so we Mm -hmm. would do this let him do this thing for us and then go okay (laughs) he's got to work for a living and support a whole crew i'm going to take as little of a footprint of his as i can okay you know we'll make it work nice are
1: these messages individually for each patient or is it just a global message that no
2: no we have to make it a global message otherwise it's not scalable it's not something that you could do again with somebody Mm. else right so the idea is that can this substitute for hypnotists can we get some guys to do some pre-recorded stuff Find out who recognizes them, right? <laughs> yeah. And if someone scores well, well, then you need uh, Eddie Vedder. I don't know. You need, you know, whoever. But the, the real, the, the, the tie-in here is that we're doing music therapy, and does the therapeutic suggestion amplify the music therapy, which we already know works? Mm-hmm. And that's where using a rock star makes sense because they know music. Yeah. So you see these sort of like legitimizing steps socially to make someone accept that message. Because there's also, my concern is a lot of people will reject a hypnotist. You know, say, oh yeah, that's hippie stuff. I don't want it, you know. And so it's hard to make people buy that. And so if you do something that's not that, well, you listen to these people all the time,
1: right? Yeah, listen to them. <laughs> well, speaking of doing our part for the hypnotist, John agreed to be hypnotized by Dr. Kittle. No, I didn't. She you comes back on. Pretty sure we'll, we'll check the tape. Awesome. Let's yeah. do it. No, no. don't don't
2: <laughs> side with him. I thought we were on the same team. Didn't we just talk well, about teams it, earlier? It would
1: prove that she's effective. <laughs> and we'd have to do you know a double blind, no one can see the quote study, where I would be the, you know, control. control John would be yeah. the, yeah. or would you be?
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> see, he's smarter than we
3: are.
1: <laughs> Most are. <laughs> oh, yeah. Not a really, not a real high barrier yeah. to
3: breach there. <laughs>
0: All right, so give me five minutes just to talk music with you real quick. You sure. wrote uh, Beheaded and I'll Be Waiting. And I'll Be Waiting, I told you,
2: was my favorite I song. I did not though. write I'll Be Waiting. That's on your Wikipedia page, though. No. Someone wrote that. I, I don't. I didn't even make my Wikipedia page, so I don't know what's appeared on it or not appeared on it. All right, well, it said you wrote You that realize song. that came out of nowhere. I can't control it, and I couldn't <laughs> delete it. I tried to delete it on several occasions, and it pops right Really? Back yeah. I'll,
3: I'll
2: don't, try, I I'll don't try want to change Wikipedia it tonight. page.
0: <laughs> I think you're one of the few that we've interviewed that has a Wikipedia page.
2: Not on my own doing we're not, we're not on right. my own control. And it said some weird stuff in the past. And I've had to delete some of it. But some of it gets deleted. Some of it gets put – I've tried to delete the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But that never works. We have one super stalker that probably just how
0: throws
1: everything how right back up things? again.
2: I don't know how they know these things. I I don't know.
0: And then I end up with bad information. But anyway, so you – but like, what, what song – like what attracted you to punk rock? What songs did you write? I mean tell me about your music. Just
2: part of the lyrics of beheaded. But I mean, that, that's all the old punk days. You make something for a laugh. I mean, yeah. that song was never meant to be anything but a laugh. Right? It's along the old lines of the, the shocking punk rock songs that make adults upset. Mm-hmm. That was the idea, right? If it upsets adults, it works.
3: <laughs> Look at your kids
2: now. What do they do? But anyhow, the the I, I didn't write much in that band at all, mm-hmm. other than just doing the drums, okay. know, and often with a lot of direction because you know it was just starting. How'd you guys meet all together? Well, I had a uh, another band that I was doing as a kind of a joke band for a party, mm-hmm. and the guitar player was Kevin Wasserman. Oh, okay. Yeah, so um, Brian was breaking up uh, a band. He lost his drummer, and he really probably wanted Kevin more than me, but you know I kind of came along with it, so. I was now the drummer? <laughs> that's how it happened
0: do you i mean did you ever is it i don't i don't know if it's a difficult question, but you know the offspring went on to you know what they are i mean they're 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 huge do you do part of you wish that you had stuck around to, to to take that track, or you're completely happy doing this, or what? What is that like?
2: I'd rather be a part-time musician and full-time surgeon than the other way around. Okay, hmm. and I don't think anybody would want me the other way around. Do hmm. <laughs> surgery on the side.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what What was it like, though, to? I mean, you were a founding member. I mean, you know those guys. I mean, you're texting them. What what was it like to watch, you know, just them, I mean, just blow up and become what they became?
2: I was in residency by then, um, my first year of residency. So, you know, um, when I stumbled upon their success i'd been out of contact for a while and mm-hmm. i was just flipping through a city page looking for something to do the weekend and i found offspring at numbers like some club called numbers i was like oh damn someone stole the name already <laughs> <laughs> and so then i called up there and i said hey um is brian there and then the manager guy got on the line he said oh yeah he's busy he's practicing in the back I said we'll put him on the phone he's like well, he's busy I'm like look this is their old drummer i'm just saying if they're You know, coming through town, they can crash at my place. Mm -hmm. Just figured it was more touring, you know, like we used to do, crashing at people's places. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it was not, right? They were usually taking off. And so, you know, he said, you don't understand. You can't just just talk to them. They're a big thing now. And I said, who is this? (laughs) I said, I'm their manager. And I just started laughing. It's like, you're the manager <laughs> of The <laughs> Offspring. Like, that's really funny. He said, well, I'll give you a backstage pass or two. You can come talk to him then. I'm like, okay, you give me a backstage pass. <laughs> Who's that <laughs> are you again? <laughs> Whatever. And so then, yeah, they were, they were pretty shocked. It was taken off and they really had no time to do anything. Wow. And just from show to show to show to show to show. And that was, at the time, it was a great time to be a musician because records still made money. Mm-hmm. Now it's the other way around. Records don't make anything. Recordings make nothing. You give them away for free, and you slave constantly on the road, traveling from place to place. I Honestly, I don't envy it. Right. I mean, it's rough work. You know, you're doing it all the time. You have to play it all the time. In the past, you could play something for a while and really love the music and then pass it off to your recording and let everyone listen to it forever. <laughs> yeah. Now it's like you've got to play it night after night and love it. You know, I don't know if I could do
0: that. Yeah. And so you're in uh bunco now, right? That's right. That's the latest incarnation. Okay. And is that, I mean, you know, kind of stupid softball question, but is it, does it help take your mind off of, you know, cancer and patients and, yeah, and everything? And it's just, cause you, I mean, you were playing even med school, you said. Don't your
2: hobbies do the
0: same thing? I hope so. <laughs> but I don't know. There's, there's something I only play on my own. I miss being in a band. I miss having that camaraderie and. I'm starting a new project now, but it's all electronic. We just send each other files. And there's, I don't know, there's something about being in a garage, sweating with your buddies, drinking beer, and just making music that way that, like you
2: said, I, I don't think music has changed. And I don't know. That's what we do. Yeah. Oh, no, I mean, we don't drink beer anymore while we play. We just try to stay more accurate. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> but yeah, the, 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 well, there's three of us, and we we compose. And it's really all about composing and recording. I have no intention of playing live. I mean, none. I mean, my bandmates say, well, why don't we? But it takes a lot of, it takes, when you're playing something live, you have to play something over and over and over and over and over and over, and over, and over again. And we kind of make something up, play it and forget it, leave it yeah. behind and make a new song. Mm-hmm. I kind of like that.
1: It's fun. How, how much practice does that take as a band to play something live?
2: Um, a lot. It I mean, you have to work. have that, you have to that's be doing all it.
1: muscle memory. At that's right.
2: You have to do it constantly and you have to be, you know, you have to be perfect. You know, well, sort of. You have to keep. There are things that audiences don't notice. Like as long as you keep the beat, they don't know what you're doing. I mean, I remember the worst show of my life was in Las Vegas, where I did a horrible job on the drums, but I never stopped playing. Mm-hmm. And I had people come up. That was great, man. <laughs> really? Okay, so you're not listening. <laughs> <laughs> you know nothing about music. <laughs> you're an idiot. Okay, next. <laughs> I, I always envied
1: drummers. Their your ability to keep beat. And just so many different beats, like your foot compared to your hands, compared to everything else that's going on. I watched, every once in a while on YouTube, you kind of see like the drum, like professionals teaching drumming lessons to other people. And like, okay, and this is how you keep 730 seconds beat. You do X, Y, and Z. And you break everything down to this. I mean, how do you learn to keep beat like that? Is it just practice or?
2: Do something over and over again and get better at it. (laughs) Doesn't matter what it is. I'm a big believer in ten thousand hours.
3: Yeah,
2: I read that was uh, what was that book? Outliers. Freaking not. Oh, Outliers. 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 Right. No, it's sort of true. I mean, obviously, it's not completely one hundred percent true, but it's it's you can turn yourself into an expert at anything if you care enough to do it for ten thousand hours. Mm -hmm. You'd be pretty world class. (laughs) Yeah. Do you, I, I forget which surgeon we had on where they said, yeah, video games might
0: help with. I mean, do you think that drumming gave you some of that dexterity that you need for surgery?
2: Only the robot. Actually, it helped me a lot with learning the robot. I picked it up instantly because it's got foot pedals. Oh, was right because so, it's got the foot pedals. Yeah. And so mm-hmm.
0: you're, you're using hands yeah. and feet, which is what you're doing on a drum kit. So it was probably. Now, do you have to stop yourself from like tapping or doing double taps or things no. like that? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, <laughs> do you? <laughs> <just sitting> <laughs> So they doing surgery, and all of a sudden starts playing a song with your feet. I know. So when I was a kid, I first started learning drums. That was the first instrument that I picked up before uh-huh. the other ones. Yeah. And I remember I was, you know, I guess, 12, and so just all that energy. And I was banging on the table. And my aunt, she was well in her 70s, and she gently puts her hand on my hands to stop me from tapping the table. And she says, look, I know every teenager is a drummer. But you don't need to tap the table.
2: <laughs> well, and it, but the, to be in all fairness, I mean it's such repetitive stuff. When you're, you're pra- I mean it's hard to practice drums in the old days when there were no electronic drums. What are you going to hit? You're going to. Everyone says stop yeah. it. You know when you're playing drums, you can only play them at certain times. So what are you going to hit? Tables, you
3: know, legs. <laughs>
2: what are you going to do? You can't practice it like guitar. You know they can plug, unplug an electric guitar and play all day and nobody cares. Right? Singers have a problem. Horn players have the same problem. Right? right? Yeah. Anything that makes noise in the air. It's hard to practice unless, you know, you can get out of earshot of somebody and drums are the worst.
0: Right. Well, I mean, I'll still pound on my steering wheel on the way home. So I, I don't know. I, sure. I don't know if I'd want
2: to be in charge of a robot where I might, I don't know. You, would, <laughs> I guarantee you would not uh, randomly pound on a pedal that has energy. So, it's like
1: you drive in your car. Do you randomly like hit the gas on the brakes? Cause no. You a song going?
0: More
2: importantly, I
0: think he's, offered, <laughs> right. he's offering me to come do a surgery on the robot. Is I heard I, it. Yeah. Huh.
2: Sure, if you want to go to jail. <laughs> <laughs> Worth it. <laughs> Stick to pigs.
0: <laughs> I think we're, we're wrapping up. We've kept you well past y- your time. Uh, is there anything else we didn't hit? I mean, I'm, I'm again, this has been a great honor. I, I can't believe that
2: i got to say it one more time that I'm interviewing the original drum for The Offspring. This is so cool. I'm glad that makes you happy. Um, I'm not sure what's so special about me. But, um, yeah, I happened to be a band that later got famous, mm-hmm. but way past when I was there. Well, if you didn't, I mean, who knows what would have happened if it wasn't there? <laughs> no, they would have kept me if I hung around, sure. <laughs> but <laughs> I had nothing to do with their success. Behead is still a cool song, though. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it is. Uh, any, did we miss anything else? Anything else we need to? Uh,
2: I don't know. Did you? Uh, well, we could always have you come back if yeah, we, we could, think I mean, of something. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Did you have a good time? Did you have yeah, fun? it was fun. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. That was I great. Hope it was fun. Hope somebody, you know, was entertained.
0: I mean, we texted earlier this morning, and you said, what are we going to talk about? And I was like, oh, boy, um, we'll find something to talk about.
1: That's all right. Your soccer will throw this on your Wikipedia page
2: and <laughs> go worldwide. <laughs> don't worry. I don't know how to edit a Wikipedia page, so it's not me. You can't. You oh. do it, and you delete stuff, and then it just goes back up or not. It, you can literally go in there and delete, and stuff will come yeah, back. You can, up or you can not. write
1: whatever you want on pretty much any Wikipedia page, but they have people that like kind of go through and they might see things or other people delete Phantom it. Phantom people on. with
2: God knows what time in their hands to look at my <laughs> obscure Wikipedia page. Who are these people?
0: Uh oh, he's looking at me. <laughs>
2: no, I'm just saying, who would do that? I don't, I really honestly, I am baffled and don't understand how that happened.
0: I, so I, for me, now granted, you, ebbs and flows, but at least on an ambulance, when you post and you're sitting in a parking lot, the joke I like to make is I've read the internet cover to cover because you're sitting in a parking lot just w- for hours, hours, and you like, just like, well, what's my favorite band? And you start researching bands and it says these are the old members. Like,
2: well, I wonder what they're doing now and why they leave this band. So, do and, other old members of other bands have Wikipedia pages? Uh, is that see. common? I oh, don't I, know. It depends <laughs> on the band. Who are not still professional.
0: I'd have to look this up. Right? Well, no, I have a, I have a real job now. I, I uh... <laughs> shouldn't have had that. Boy, well, yeah, you do like data, John. I do like data. Sounds like a project. Uh...
1: <laughs> <laughs> On that note. <laughs> Thank really. you very much again. Yeah. That
3: was great. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Off the Box was produced by me, Steve Cooper. Our amazing artwork was provided by Dodge Design Studios and a big thanks to San Jose's very own NFM for this week's music. the Box podcast is provided as a public service. Views and opinions expressed on the podcast reflect the personal opinions of the authors and their guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of Regional Medical Center of San Jose, Good Samaritan Hospital, or any other affiliated entity. Just do not receive any incentive for appearing on the podcast. The Fox podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to serve as a recommendation for medical care, and has not been verified for the accuracy of the information contained herein. If you think you may need emergency care, please either contact 911 or go to the nearest emergency room.